Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and here I have long-format, informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Thanks for joining us. If you're a repeat listener, thanks for understanding about the long delay since the last episode. We are back in business, so to speak, and should be able to keep rolling along now, hopefully. Either way, thanks for downloading, subscribing, streaming, or however you are accessing this. Your support is very much appreciated. Today I'm talking with Professor Michael McIntyre. Professor McIntyre, for those of you who don't know, is one of the giants of atmospheric fluid dynamics, um, having made a number of important contributions to the field, particularly in the stratosphere and the ozone layer. More generally, he's a mathematician, and mathematicians, um, especially of his caliber, have this uh, lovely ability to, uh, for their work to touch many, many different areas of science. Uh, so since the late 1960s, Professor McIntyre has been a faculty member in one form or another in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. I'm going to go ahead and read you his research blurb from the university website, which I kind of like to do because I suspect that he's at least looked at this and uh, has proofread it. Professor McIntyre is a member of the Atmospheric Dynamics and Astrophysical Research Groups in DAMPT. That's the uh, Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, DAMPT. His recent research has mainly been focused on atmosphere-ocean dynamics and also solar magnetohydrodynamics. So like I said, mathematicians, they get to go all over the place. Their work can sometimes span very, very broad uh, areas. He's best known for his work on the terrestrial stratosphere and the ozone layer and on the relevant mathematical theory behind the operation of those two uh, components of the Earth system. He has all had a, also had a long-standing interest in perception and cognition, arising partly from the problem of visualizing atmospheric flows while relating them to abstract theoretical concepts, and partly from interest in musical performance, musical composition, and musical acoustics. Those things might all sound unrelated. They are related. They're, they're very nicely and intimately related, and that's part of what Professor McIntyre and I will discuss. Um, and he also mentions that in collaboration with James Woodhouse and Robert Schumacher, he has made some fundamental contributions to our understanding of the musically relevant behavior of bowed string instruments. Yeah, there, there's the, uh, the mathematician's ability, again, to span a really wide uh, space in terms of the relevance of their work. Professor McIntyre is very much still an active researcher. You can find his latest preprint uh, on his website uh, on the interactions between waves and vortices, and you can also find some recent papers on Jupiter, Jupiter's unearthly jets. I really appreciated our time together recording in Professor McIntyre's Cambridge office. We discussed uh, lucidity principles on the connections between mathematics, music, model building, and the implications of those things for clear and effective communication. I think this is important stuff to think about as the relationships between people, between people and systems of knowledge, and how we think about the world, all of that hinges on clear and effective communication. 
you know, it's a topic that connects who we are, how our minds work when representing the world, the practice of science and the reality of science, and how all of that ties together. It was a real pleasure to talk about all of this. Um, we also talked about some fundamental geophysical fluid dynamics, including how Rossby waves work, what is potential vorticity, which was enjoyable for me. I always like going back to the basics. It helps me feel uh, grounded in some way. You can find Professor McIntyre's work on lucidity principles on his personal website. Usually, if you Google something like Mac Michael McIntyre mathematics or atmospheric science, you need to add some terms like that, uh, mathematics, atmospheric science, Cambridge. Uh, usually, some relevant things will come right up. If you end up on his official university homepage, check out the sidebar. There's a link to his personal homepage there. To uh, follow the podcast, we have a twitter account at climate SciPod, so uh, feel free to follow there for updates and uh, also please do rate and review the podcast if you're listening on itunes and other platforms that uh, helps us out and gives us some good feedback so let's go ahead get right into it let's drop into this conversation between myself and professor michael mcintyre enjoy So you've talked uh, and written extensively about the connections between you know, music and science and uh, mathematics, and I was wondering if if you'd just like to say a little bit about that. I mean, you have a, a, some papers out on that. You have a, a book that you've been working on on that topic, and I just wanted to give you a chance to expand on those connections. Okay. Um, this is something I care about passionately because I care about good science, and good science, especially now and in the future, is going to depend on not just understanding things, but on good communication. And to me, all these things are connected together with um, music and mathematics. If you know something about how music works, then you gain insight into how communication and other forms of thinking work, including mathematics. There are deep connections, which I've thought about for many years and this ebook that you mentioned um, tries to it's about three quarters finished yeah. it tries to give a coherent <clears throat> account of those ideas that pulls them together a bit more tightly than yeah. the original published papers and indeed takes them further yeah. because I've always been interested in why things like what makes for good communication what makes for lucidity what makes for not only understanding things for oneself but conveying that understanding to others do we want to start with the, the music and why music and communication why well yeah I was going to say why you can gain insight into that from understanding how music works for instance mm -hmm. uh, because all these things depend on how perception works and remember the word perception the words perception and understanding overlap um, if I and, and I was going to say insight into how all these things work to me as a scientist depend on insight into how biological evolution works especially the evolution of our own ancestors so when you said perception and understanding overlap how do they overlap the words well the words um, if you think about survival um, if I see a charging rhinoceros coming at me mm -hmm. if I perceive a charging rhinoceros Rhinoceros, I understand that I better jump out of the way or I might mm. come to a sorry end. Yeah. 
So that's what I mean by overlapping. Mm. This is understanding in the most visceral and intuitive sense. But, of course, understanding in that sense matters for science. Understanding in a very immediate kind of what some might call a gut level, very instinctual sort of way. Yes. That's that level of understanding. Yes, yes. That is important. And all the great scientists show this. And, by the way, this is related to the business of the left and right hemispheres which have different styles of perception and understanding of the brain yeah left and right hemispheres of the the brain brain. yeah Yeah. yes which go far beyond the popular cultural view you know language is all in the left and music is all in the right and so on a very superficial viewpoint but there's a wonderful book by ian a man called ian mcgilchrist who's a neuropsychiatrist uh which i cite in my ebook and he makes the point that the two hemispheres are evolutionarily ancient. And although they probably started at a very primitive level, think of the most primitive fish you can think of, or whatever, um, just a bilateral vertebrate organism, uh, they probably differentiated because for survival, it's a good thing to have two di- very different styles of perception. One of them is detailed and analytic and dissectional. You, you, if you're a pigeon and you see some small objects on the ground, you will be interested in whether they are grains of sand or seeds that are good to eat. Mm. So you focus on them. This is the left hemisphere's job, to look at detail in a very dissected way. The right hemisphere's job is to see things in a more holistic way. It has a completely different repertoire of models. We haven't talked about model fitting, but I'm going to, I should come to this fact that perception works by model fitting, which is an unconscious process in the brain. Anyway, the right hemisphere has a style of perception that's holistic and much more open to the unexpected. So if you, coming back to our pigeon, if, if you, the pigeon, suddenly see something in your per- peripheral vision, you look around just in time to see the descending bird of prey and you'll abandon your seeds in a flash. Mm. And that's the right hemisphere's job, a typical job of the right hemisphere. And the most powerful kinds of perception and understanding always seem to me to come from both hemispheres mm-hmm. in partnership. Yeah. And you see this in all everything that the great scientists tell us, the Richard Feynman's, the Peter Meadows, the Charles Darwin's. You, you, you see this collaboration, uh, the right hemisphere's, uh, the left hemisphere analysing something like a bloodhound with its mm-hmm. nose to the ground and saying is this and that detail the right hemisphere being more like a bird flying above the whole landscape mm. and seeing a bigger yeah. picture and the, the right hemisphere says to what are you bothering with that bit um, I smell a rat, you're, you're making a mistake <laughs> and so the uh, and, and by the way uh, I'm getting ahead of myself because to understand this well you have to recognise this point that perception works by model fitting mm. um, if you look at anything on my web pages, almost, uh, if you look at my ebook, you'll see this picture of 12 moving points. Mm-hmm. You've seen it, haven't you? Yeah, and I, I can link to it as well when we yes. get the episode up. But if you the, want to uh, find this, all yeah. you have to do is do a Google search on ebook, e hyphen book, yeah. and quote lucidity principles, unquote. <laughs> yeah. And even if you spell principles wrong, Google will probably find it now, yeah. I think. So that, that left hemisphere right hemisphere contrast of the brain i mean the picture you've painted for me is that the left hemisphere tends to 
break things into component parts. Yeah, to, you know, break, yeah, whereas the right hemisphere tries to integrate things. So you have this constant potential balance between breaking things into parts and integrating them. So that and and that you really need both of those to understand, you know, whatever it is you're perceiving, whether it's something very visceral, like is this tiger coming to eat me, or some abstract mathematical theorem. That's that's a good summary. Mm. And the right hemisphere is not only more integrated, but also much fuzzier. Mm. See, it can't afford to look at detail because there isn't the computing power. Mm. It sees things in a fuzzy but much more holistic and integrated way, including spatial relations. So the descending bird of prey is a natural subject for the right hemisphere to perceive. Mm. Yes. So mm. one actually literally has a different amount of computing power than the other. I didn't, I didn't no, know that. No, I would... Not necessarily. I don't think there's any evidence that the computing power is all that different. Okay. About the same numbers of neurons, you know, mm. 5 billion, 50, I think it's 50 billion, 50 billion. neurons each. But <laughs> that's a small number compared with the number of interconnections, mm. which is combinatorially large. It's unimaginably large. <laughs> so, But, I mean, there's no reason to suppose the computing powers are any different. It's just that the styles of mm. computation or model fitting are... Are different. I haven't quite finished the point about model fitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's dig into that. Because, yeah, model fitting. You know, my there's all sorts of examples, but my favourite example of these twelve moving points, which you can see if you find my web page, it's a great classic in experimental psychology. There are twelve moving points on a two-dimensional plane, and everyone with normal vision who looks at them sees a person walking. Right. Yeah. Yes. Every human. <laughs> Very well known to movie yeah. animators. Yeah. Uh, they're just their bread and butter. Yeah, but it's literally just 12 dots, 12 white dots moving on against the black background, but our brains interpret that as a moving person. Yes, and yeah. the only way it can do that, I would argue, is by fitting models. It's mm-hmm. an unconscious process. We're mm-hmm. not aware of it. But it's probably Bayesian... There's a, there are favoured prior probabilities for a certain kind of three-dimensional motion. I mean, the 12 moving points could be something else. They could be people with lanterns or anything. So if the brain prioritises a three-dimensional motion corresponding to a person walking with invariant distances between the joints mm. and so on. So when you say it's Bayesian and there's a different prior, could we say that your brain sort of expects something like that. It, it, it's used to expecting and kind of anticipating, oh, this is a person moving towards me or this is an animal animal moving towards me. So it's somewhere in there in your brain there's a module that says when you see this kind of motion, that's probably a person. It might not be, right? And But it, it it's, I guess, to our survival advantage for our brains to go ahead and think that's probably a person or a potential threat or something. Let's just go ahead and assume that it is because... You know, on the off, oh well, on the chance that uh, if it's not a tiger and not something coming to eat us, that's fine. That's an error we can make, right? We can we can make that sort of error without too much trouble. But if it's if we just shrug it off and say, oh well, that's not something coming to eat me, and it is, then well, we, we're, then you're we're dead. In, then you're dead. Yeah, then you're, you're, you're you've been eaten. So you're yes. yeah. So you, so this the is, Bayesian analysis is a little better than that. Because, yes, you have an expectation, you have some favoured models that you're going to try and fit to the perceptual data, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is not just vision, but also the ground shaking and sounds and everything right. coming in together. Yes. And you're fitting a model to the whole thing. And um, Bayesian analysis says if it doesn't quite fit, I will slightly adjust the model. Mm-hmm. It, it has the ability to update the model in the light of the data received, and it keeps on doing that. Hmm. And the reason for we don't know that the brain precisely does Bayesian analysis, but there's a strong argument that it should, because 
Bayesian analysis is optimal in the sense that it's the only self-consistent way of fitting models that depends on a one-dimensional continuum of 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 uh, let's say plausibility. Hmm. You see, what Bayesian analysis recognizes is that the probability calculus can measure not just numbers of coin or dice throws or the frequentist picture. That's a small part of the whole. It can also represent subjective plausibilities, and that's the relevant sense for this purpose. Hmm. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we usually find math probability mathematics difficult because there's always this conflict between trying to grasp it consciously and do the analysis on the one hand and um, reconciling it with intuition on the other which Mm. is the unconscious Bayesian process (laughs) which may conflict with the conscious so there's all these counterintuitive probability conundrums as is well known like the three doors and and that's a multi something problem. Is it oversimplifying Bayesian uh, fitting and statistics to say that that Bayesian approach is all about starting with an initial guess or model and then making adjustments to that model based on new information? It is, exactly. That's the essential, yeah, so you have to have something to start with. Yes. Yeah, and your brain brain has something to start with. It has some basic models that it has uh, inbuilt, more or less. Uh, Where do those, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And by the way, the something to start with has always interested me because it seems to answer the old question is, what is the platonic world of perfect forms? (laughs) which Plato thought was a sort of had an independent existence yeah. outside the ordinary mundane hmm. world. But of course, uh, and, and the feeling is, you, is that these perfect forms, smooth curves, circles, uh, parabolas, all those beautiful mathematical objects are already there. Hmm. Um, so I'm a Platonist in that debate. Hmm. Other people say, oh, no, no, mathematics is all just an invention hmm. by humans. But I, re- I think it's already in the sense that they are the model components that are in the unconscious mm. brain. And you can almost demonstrate it. If you take a... what, some, If you take the idea of a smooth curve and then try to represent it on a computer screen, you don't really have that. You have a little staircase because of the mm. pixels on yes. the screen. Right. Nevertheless, if we look at it from a distance, we see a smooth curve because the brain prefers to fit a smooth curve because that's one of the platonic objects, one of the model components it already has ready to fit. Yeah. And you see, there's a point to this. You can't spend your life fitting needlessly complicated mm. objects to the data. You want to fit the simplest possible, and the platonic objects are the simplest possible objects that fit also to data. Think of the horizon of the sea, mm. almost a straight line. We find that beautiful, don't we, when we see mm. a sharp horizon? Mm-hmm. It's a, a sort of fitting one of those objects. We find a, pl- a Corinthian column beautiful. It's a smooth, curved thing. Because our brain, for whatever reason, has an easy time fitting that phenomenon to one of the models that it has uh, built in for some reason. Yeah, a, a line or a curve. It has those kind of ready, ready to go, ready to use. So, and that kind of reminds me about when you're perceiving music, that your brain has an easier time perceiving music when, for example, like in a harmony, when all of the 
troughs and valleys of the sound waves kind of line up, right? And you have the harmonics lining up with each other, and your brain has an easier time interpreting that sort of signal um, than yes. it does a, a dissonant one with a very complicated, you know, Fourier spectrum with phases all over the place. And <laughs> that's um, right. Yeah. Okay. There's a very yeah. interesting. There's some very interesting points about that mm. as well, because um, I mean, straight away you can relate that to survival. Um, why do we have these ears and these incredibly sophisticated hearing systems? It was for survival. Mm-hmm. Because we need to recognize sources of sound. Yes. And many sources of sound in the natural world are quasi-periodic motions produced by vocal cords like ours or the syrinx in a bird, <laughs> which can produce two notes at once, by the way, which is another. But um, that means that the brain's model-fitting processes that can make sense of incoming sounds have to know about quasi-periodic signals and mathematically that's the same as knowing about Fourier, the Fourier transform of that, the two things are equivalent <laughs> yeah. and that immediately translates into knowing about what musicians call the harmonic series mm-hmm. you know I can't sing it in tune but <laughs> octave, perfect fifth perfect fourth mm-hmm. and so on those are the simple musical instruments exactly what you were talking about mm. and they're the sort of basis of all the musics I know about, including Western music, because Western music has a complexity and sophistication that comes from an incredible arithmetic accident, which is that two to the power of seven twelfths is very close to three halves. So, how does that factor in? <laughs> so that's very close to a perfect fifth. Hmm. That's the, so, and and if you have a piano keyboard that's tuned to equal tempo tuning, you don't have exactly a perfect fifth, but it's so close that the ear doesn't mind the difference. Hmm. And and that in turn means you can equally well have things going on in any key. You can have this amazing magic modulation from one key to another. What I call hyperspace leaps. Musical harmony space has two kinds of closeness. Now I'm getting ahead of myself again. <laughs> Not only um, does perception work by model fitting, but the whole process is especially sensitive to patterns exhibiting what I like to call organic change, which has means something very simple. It means patterns in which some things change, usually by small amounts or continuously, while other things stay the same. Mm. They're always invariant elements. And you can replace most of what's in the big fat books on musical harmony by a simple, a single statement. Harmonic progressions, chord sequences that work well as um, moving you along continuously are all organically changing patterns. But the interesting thing is that there are two kinds of smallness. One kind of smallness is the <coughs> obvious one of being next door on the keyboard or the guitar fingerboard, tardy, the semitone. Mm-hmm. The other kind of smallness is the one that comes from the structure of a harmonic series. And in that kind of smallness, the octave is the smallest. Mm. It, the octave is so small in that sense, it even has the same note name in musical jargon. Right. You know, there's middle C and the C above middle C and so on and so forth. Hmm. And the perfect fifth is the next smallest. And if you take both kinds of smallness into account and say that your chord progression will exhibit organic change, 
some things are invariant and other things change by small amounts, mm-hmm. you catch most of the important harmonic progressions, right. including the new ones discovered by Debussy. Debussy was the first great composer to recognise this. He kept it as a trade secret, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a very competitive world being a composer. Uh, you have that, and you have the fact that the harmonic series is special. If you recognise those two things, straight away you've got all of Debussy's harmony. Hmm. If you recognise the an octave is, in a sense, very close, and the fifth is the next closest, in, in some kind of sense of perception of how your brain puts those things together in relation to each other. That's part of it, and yeah. more... Uh, holistically you could say the brain knows about the harmonic series Mm. because we have to survive in a jungle full of animal sounds and identify sound sources so it knows about the harmonic series of course what it's really doing is timing repeating neurological neural signals as you said at the start Um, but it knows about the harmonic in your musical language it knows about the harmonic series so it's no surprise that bits of the harmonic series uh, like the that's the what I've lost count, but that's part of it. That's the common chord. That's a harmonic series segment. That's the seventh chord, and it sounds good with a slightly flattened seventh because the harmonic seventh is flattened. Um, so if you recognize that any chunk of the harmonic series like that will be special to the musical ear, you've gone a long way towards understanding how musical harmony works. So that's one kind of model that your brain is able to fit, that your brain kind of has built in because uh, for, for reasons of survival, as you mentioned. And we let's see, we talked about visual models as well. Um, what other kind of simple models are there in your in your brain that uh, that, that kind of come already preloaded? And I, I really am I'm interested in that concept of where do those uh, where do those simple models come from, and how do they show up? Where do those Bayesian priors come from? Right, that's kind of a related yeah. that's a related related question. Yeah. And you know, saying it, that it, they showed up for reasons of survival makes sense, but I feel like one could really go down a rabbit hole and, and try to investigate in great detail you know, how a particular uh, mode, or how, how a particular model showed up. Um, well, we don't know yeah, the actual neural no, circuitry. That no. is too complex for us to have more than a bit of a sort of uh, slight yeah. knowledge of. I mean, more is known now than used to be when I first started writing on this. Yeah. For example, we're talking about top-down and bottom-up together. Mm-hmm. You've got the data coming in at the bottom... But you've got the top-down with the Bayesian model fitting, actively Mm. trying to find a model that fits the data, which doesn't always work, by the way, uh, in which case your perceptual experience is being confused or disoriented. Hmm. And that made me uh, kind of think about how now this work is relatively recent, that people are starting to construct uh, neural networks. They're starting to construct artificial uh, mathematical and computational representations of mental models like this that do things like pattern recognition and that do things like learning and making small adjustments to uh, a, a simple model, to a way of, of kind of seeing the world. Oh, that, yes. that's, a, that's a fascinating development. Have you, you come across that very much? It's, it's very starting much. To, I mean, it's, uh, it's hugely important, not just scientifically, but also for society, since dark forces have started to harness it mm. just now. Yeah. And we have to find ways of fighting that um, I mean there's a real threat to not just democracy but civilization hmm. from 
those forces. Um, forces in the sense of people are learning how to manipulate people, you know, using social media. They're learning the kind of, uh, oh, well, if I show them this kind of article as opposed to this kind of article, I can nudge their opinion over in this direction and get them to vote this way or that way. Yes, and look at the... And and there's a kind of basic point about that. I call it the dichotomization instinct, or you could also say um, the push to make all choices binary. Mm -hmm. That was the whole... It was and is the whole trouble with the Brexit Mm -hmm. debate. Mm -hmm. The binary referendum was the first mistake. Mm -hmm. And the way the politicians talk now, taking it for granted that if there's another referendum, it has to be binary... It's what I call pressing the dichotomization button. Mm. It's like what the social media do that has now become so poisonous. You have the like and sometimes the dislike button. You're dichotomizing everything. It's 500 million years old or more, this thing. Mm. Uh, Back then, we already had fight or flight, male or female, edible or inedible. Dichotomization has been important for survival. But we've got to get smarter than that. Because it's going to destroy civilization if we don't. It is part of that's part of how our brains work. We get into teams, right? We form teams, and it becomes an us versus them sort of. There's an instinct to, to, to do that. Uh, and there's an instinct, like you said, to just label things as good as good or bad, to label things as black and white, right? And so, you know, th- this is, um, yeah, the, the, the polarization, and I, I feel like even though I'm not that. Uh, you know, not that old. I, I feel like I've seen that change over my lifetime as well, because um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, in this, born in a period where you know I grew up without the internet, without much technology. I mean, we had a simple, you know, eight-bit, you know, game console, and that that was that was all. Uh, but we didn't have anything like the internet or social media. So I, I remember what it was like kind of before that, and I've been able to sort of see the the transition into that world, and it. I don't know if it, how much of it is just my my change in perception, but something does feel pretty different about how uh, th- just how hyper polarized things seem to be. And yes, it's one of these un- unintended consequences. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg didn't plan to do this, but of course, what he did plan to do was to get people addicted to mm-hmm. his websites, and that of course involves pressing all these primitive emotional buttons, including right. dichotomization. Right. Right. Uh, dichotomization makes us stupid. Look, what about the climate problem? How often have you heard this on the radio? Tell me, Professor So-and-so, was this last extreme weather event due to climate change or was it just a weather fluctuation? Right, right. And, of course, the answer should be it's both, of course. Mm-hmm. It's not a dichotomy. Mm-hmm. It's that... It's that climate change makes extreme events more and more probable mm-hmm. with the probability increasing gradually. Yeah. And that's quite a simple thing to understand, and yet it's usually excluded from these interviews. It is, yeah. You're right that, that often it's framed in terms of an either-or binary sort of choice, but uh, climate change is more like... I've heard it said succinctly that we're kind of loading the dice. We're making extreme events more likely. You know, we're changing the, the probability, the distribution of these events. That's what one has to say, because that's mm. the way it is, according to our best understanding, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's very hard to ward off this dichotomization button that's been pressed for decades by the climate disinformers. Yes. When I worked on the ozone hole, I hope we'll come to my professional work in, in a bit, mm-hmm. but when I worked on that, I noticed that the professional disinformers in the pay of the chemical companies who want to stop anything like the Montreal Protocol to regulate chlorofluorocarbon emissions, those disinformers 
are always pressing the dark optimization button. Hey, look, these scientists say the ozone hole is man-made. Oh, there's an equally valid view that says it's natural, and whenever we get on the media, you must give us equal airtime with the scientists. And that's what they do in climate, too, whenever yeah. they can. Yeah, it's this. Um, you, you recommended this book to me, this Merchants of Doubt book by Naomi Oreskes. Oreskes, um, yes, that's Oreskes right. And, and Conway, yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it's we talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. It's it's a very good book, but it's difficult to read because it's such a dark, <laughs> such a dark picture. But I think I think the authors they, they do a good job of trying to help you understand like um, the history of this, and they they talk about that it's a relatively small set of folks, a lot of them from phys- uh, from physics, like they started in the physics community. Well, they started in, like, in, in, in tobacco and lung cancer. Right. But some of them were like physical scientists. They were... You know, some of them were, in physics, uh, yes, and and including the ones who argued that tobacco doesn't cause lung cancer. Right. Um, I expect they got very well paid for that. Yeah, and I, I mean, Naomi Oreskes, and, and they document a lot of that, don't they? In that book, they actually have some of the... Well, here's a spreadsheet where we found some of these paintings. And the reason uh, we know that many of the same people were involved in both that and in the anti-ozone whole campaign is, is the litigation of, on lung cancer mm. that finally brought some of their secret documents into the open. Yes. Here's the way you sow confusion and doubt. Here's the way you show dis- sow yeah. disinformation. You notice, by the way, the Russians are the best in the world at doing this now. <laughs> it comes partly from postmodernist philosophy, because postmodernism says anything goes, anything is possible, no- and nothing is true. Mm. You mustn't dare ever to talk about truth. In, uh, now, that's a difficult one philosophically. You know what? We're going to take all day and all night if we get into the deeper philosophical issues. And well, I would, I'm interested in them, yeah. but um, my advantage is I don't have to, because I'm not a card-carrying philosopher, I can talk about some of the basic issues in a much simpler way than they can. That's right, yeah. You know, perception <laughs> works by model fitting as time goes on. That's a simple idea, isn't it? Mm. And by the way, it tells you what science is as well, because science also works by model fitting Yes. to data. That says more than all the shelves full of books on the philosophy of science. You know, Dan Dennett, I, I admire him a lot, even though I don't, just don't quite agree with him about Darwin. But Dan Dennett is a very smart philosopher. But he can't say perception works by model fitting. He's got to say um, there is a... Oh, it, it's called... The, it's all about the multiple drafts model of consciousness, mm. you see, which to me is a less clear way of saying it. Right, he has to give some of the he has to give some of the qualifiers and some of the you know, he has to give oh well let me be careful and he has to pay respects to you know, the various schools of thought that are out there and competing right whereas we have the the permission well we have the the privilege we we can oversimplify it a little bit we can boil it down as yeah. scientists yeah. and my writings are aimed at young scientists we have this privilege as you say position of wanting to say things clearly and mm. simply yes. Uh, because we care a lot about respect for the evidence. This is why I've always struggled with this business of how language works. I even haven't even started to talk about how our language ability evolved, hmm. um, which which is one of the quarrels I have with the selfish gene theory. Um, I don't know how long I should go on, but I mean, it's if anyone's you. interested, yeah, to you. I try to discuss this very very carefully in my ebook, which remember. You Google lucidity principles to find. <laughs> yeah, 
Even if you just Google your name, it's one of the first things. No, that no, that's no good up. because there's a famous comedian called Michael McIntyre. That's why um, I put my middle name in these days, Michael Edgeworth McIntyre. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you Google on that, I expect you'll find my stuff. Yeah, Michael McIntyre plus Cambridge or plus math. That also works. I found. Yeah. That, it, I expect one, one additional. Yeah, <laughs> a comedian doesn't claim not to know comedian. about maths. <laughs> no, that's right. They're not not, not <laughs> comedian. <laughs> joke is, I don't get his jokes. And he doesn't get your math, probably. Uh, I, would I get. don't suppose he does. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, that by the by. Maybe that's unfair to him. I don't know. Maybe he does. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, I mean, as scientists, we need to be concerned about being clear mm-hmm. in our thinking and communication. You know what I? I would. I'd summarize the thing by saying we are interested in understanding how things work in the outside world, mm-hmm. uh, and to me. And here I am in good company with people like Feynman and Meadow and Einstein. I think understanding something means being able to look at it with equations, with pictures, with feelings, and with words. Yes. And when all four of those agree with each other, <laughs> you can begin to think you understand something. Yeah, and I guess a good sign of that is when you can explain that concept simply, when you have figured out how to boil it down to... A, a fairly simple, concise statement that you can try to convey to someone in, yeah. in, a, in a nice package, nice clean kind of package. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to tell the whole story. You don't have to tell the whole story in that short summary, but it can give somebody a, a clean kind of entryway into thinking about that concept. Yes, you can say, roughly speaking, it's like this, mm. but more precisely, if you'll be patient, I can give you more detail. Yeah. And there could be several levels, exactly. like that, down to the de- most detailed mathematics. Oh, and that just reminded me about you know, our, your point about model fitting. You, know, you, you could start with a simple model, an overly simplified model, and then you make iterations on it, don't you? You make it small adjustments, and you can add complexity and take away complexity as needed. And that can help build your, your understanding. That is a very important point. Mm. We tend to talk about that as the hierarchy of models. Yes. And it also reflects the way the brain works. Because in my pigeon example, well, I mean, straight away with the two brain hemispheres, you've got two levels. You've got the fuzzy, holistic, quick model that mm. leaves you open to the unexpected. You've got the more detailed check so here we are again, a great scientist, someone who can both fly above the landscape and see the big picture, hmm. and also land and nose around like a bloodhound mm. in the detail. You have to switch back and forth between the left and right <laughs> hemispheres, between yes. those two modes of operation. Actually, yeah. in, the, in, the, in your head, you can have both going on at once, yeah. the picture and the detail. And that really is another aspect of it, really, really understanding something. Uh, that's fantastic. That's really good. So now, you see, I wanted to finish talking about language. Yeah, please. Because I see all these things as products of biological evolution. And I think a really important point that's missed by most of the evolutionary biologists, even perhaps today, although they're picking up on the complexity and why selfish gene isn't good enough, um, and that is that evolutionary processes can be multi-timescale processes. In our case, it's obviously important that cultural evolution and genomic evolution are interlinked. Mm. How would we have learned all this stuff about social intelligence and theory of mind? And I can, I think I know what you're thinking, and I think I know what you're thinking that I'm thinking, and so on, which is part of our social intelligence mm. and the language we use to communicate and influence each other. How was all that selected for? Mm. Well, the only answer I think that makes sense is that. The building blocks for that is in the genome. Notice I say building blocks. 
not blueprint. That's the self gene idea. The genome simply is a blueprint for how mm. an organism develops. No, it's building blocks. It's self-assembling building blocks that assemble in ways that are influenced by the environment. And with language, despite all this work from the linguists who talk about the Nostratic original tongue and all of that, from which the Indo-European group evolved and all of that, uh, they think that language is a purely cultural invention mm. that was, uh, many of them would tell you, was made about 50,000 years ago. No, I say, um, so complex an ability as language had to evolve um, by this co-evolution of genome and culture, which is a multi-timescale process. Cultural evolution is very fast. How, you might answer, can the latest whim or flash in the pan or fashion in the cultural world possibly influence genomic evolution? And my answer is, well, that's cultural evolution is very fast and genomic is very slow, but that doesn't mean there isn't a powerful interaction. Mm. There are plenty of other examples of such multi-timescale processes. One is gas pressure and gas temperature. Mm. When you pump up your bicycle, the slow changes in pressure and temperature are mediated by nothing but the very fast collisions <laughs> of molecules. Mm. And the timescales are hugely different, and yet the interaction is not just powerful, but it is the whole thing <laughs> in that case. The ozone hole is another example. Think of the range of timescales. Photons hitting molecules on femtosecond timescales and uh, great circulations in the stratosphere, part of my professional work, the blue adobson circulation, which moves chemicals around on timescales of years. <laughs> and then there's the destruction of the chlorofluorocarbons, which takes a century or more, as they're gradually moved through the stratosphere and get shone on by the ultraviolet. Yeah. And all in, in between, you have all the turbulent, the turbulence that makes you fasten your seatbelt in an aeroplane, timescales of seconds and longer sorts of timescale sorts of turbulence with jet streams meandering around, including the one that isolates the ozone hole mm -hmm. and all its interesting transport properties, which is part of my professional work. Mm -hmm. um, there are this huge range of timescales. You, if you started looking at that, you'd say, this problem is hopelessly complicated. How can we ever begin to understand it scientifically? And yet, through these wonderful collaborations between chemists and radiation experts and people like me who think about fluid dynamics, we have arrived at an understanding so secure that for the first of a global-scale environmental problem and an understanding that it's man-made an understanding that actually influenced giant multinational corporations, the chemical corporations, mm -hmm. and governments. And we have the Montreal Protocol, and we've got the thing more or less under control. And by the way, we're better off with climate because that's cut down the uh, number of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. Mm. So that was a political as well as a scientific milestone, and it all comes from this thing I call scientific understanding building models, building and updating models and seeing if you can fit those models together. And again, you have a hierarchy of models. Mm -hmm. You have the models of photon hitting, photons hitting molecules, including the, the detailed quantum models of that, telling you about all the energy levels. You, you have the um, radiation models, which are approximate but are very well developed, so you have some idea how the infrared and the ultraviolet go through the atmosphere and mm -hmm. hit various levels of it. 
and you have the fluid dynamics which influences the transport. Yeah. In the early days, which I remember from my early career, the fluid dynamical models were completely wrong because they said that things mix horizontally along the stratification surfaces, the isotopic surfaces and the stratosphere, and so it's just like stirring tea. And that was a reasonable first guess at a model, but it's completely wrong because, for instance, the edge of the ozone hole is a jet stream, and a jet stream is a barrier to mm. chemical transport. Yeah. It almost isolates the interior of the ozone hole, which is why you see the different chemical signatures on the two sides of the edge of the hole. Yeah, there's something similar in the ocean where the Antarctic circumpolar current also acts as a mixing barrier, that it's yeah. hard to get uh, stuff you know, for, from one side to the other. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That is fundamentally the same fluid dynamics. It's, it's well, it's the subjects, it's the jet streams, jet, the currents within the ACC as a whole, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, Antarctic circumpolar <laughs> Now that, that's something that uh, folks who work in the Southern Ocean will occasionally say, especially folks who work in dynamics, is you know, when you're thinking with the ACC, they'll say, well, everything we know, we know because the stratospheric community did it first you know, a few decades ago. <laughs> they laid down the theoretical foundations for you know, what, how do you treat if you have a, a jet, kind of a circumpolar jet, now, what are some of the mixing properties and how does that jet kind of respond and obviously the spatial scales and time scales are, are different but uh, it's really widely recognized that uh, the ACC Antarctic Circumpolar Current kind of community and Southern Ocean community was able to build on the work of the stratospheric community and to learn a lot well yes in which I was intimately yeah. involved mm. one of the tools is the so called transformed Eulerian mean <laughs> description yeah. which is very useful in the Antarctic Circumpolar Current and yes I was myself very much involved in fact I think David Andrews and I were really the first to point that out mm. uh, do you want to say a little bit about that? Oh, uh, okay, that gets a bit mathematical. But, I mean, the idea, roughly speaking, mm -hmm. the idea is mm -hmm. that you want a measure of mean circulations in the stratosphere or in the Antarctic circumpolar current which relate to how chemicals are moved around. And in the stratosphere, it's been clear from observations, this goes back to a, a, a pioneering paper by Alan Brewer, it's been clear that the... The large-scale circulation transporting chemicals, it's called the Brewer-Dobson circulation yes. these days, um, is upward in the tropics and then poleward and downward in both hemispheres with a taller cell in the winter hemisphere. And if you take averages in a naive way, simply averaging velocities at, and other quantities, at one fixed point then you'd get the wrong answer. Point you'd being do, like a height or a pressure level above the surface? Well, or? now we get a bit technical, but uh, it, for instance, you use pressure coordinates and call that height, mm. and you average um, at a fixed pressure right. altitude yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and a fixed latitude, uh, and you take the zonal average. You get the wrong sign of the mm. circulation in some places. <laughs> you don't get this upward in the tropics and poleward and downward elsewhere. You, you get a, a multi-cell you, you get an extra cell with it uh, being downward in a different place. So um, what you want is a measure of the mean circulation that doesn't do that. The transformed Eulerian mean circulation is a simple way of getting much closer to the true, we call it Lagrangian mean mm. transport, because what you're interested in is a parcel of air. Does, it, does a parcel go upward or downward on average? Mm -hmm. And that gets technically tricky because you've got these vast breaking Rossby waves, which is another thing that I was 
intimately involved in. The world's largest breaking waves, Dan. <laughs> must be waves, yeah. yeah. Think of a, bra- yeah. <laughs> a, a break of the mere tip of... They break sideways, of course. Yeah. Think of a break of the mere tip of which is the size of the whole United States. <laughs> That's the scale of these waves. And actually understanding them is very much part of understanding how these global-scale circulations work, as well as jet streams and the dynamical barrier at the edge of the ozone hole. What do they break on? It's not a physical surface. They don't surface. break on anything... Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, well, that's an interesting thing. You're thinking of an ocean beach now, aren't you? Well, I thought it would be good to talk about it. So I well, to yeah, say, I know, mean, when, uh, why does something like that break in the atmosphere? I always use the, I usually use the ocean beach as a, as a, a sort of um, related problem when I lecture on these things yeah, because yeah. It, it's, it's always been clear for rather arcane mathematical reasons. This is a good example of the hierarchy of models, mm-hmm, by the way. Mm-hmm. But it's always been clear that the way you define wave breaking should respect the way waves generate mean flows. Well, the thing everyone knows about is that breakers coming into a beach do generate mean flows um, to a first approximation. They come in obliquely and generate longshore currents because there's a momentum transport associated with the waves. That's a very generic thing in physics, practically. Any sort of wave motion causes momentum to Mm. be transported from one place to another. Usually it's from the place where the waves are generated to the way where it's dissipated, although there are some very interesting and subtle problems I've worked on recently, which uh, I could come to. But but in in these classic problems, it's enough to recognise you generate waves here, you dissipate them there, and there's a systematic transport of momentum from the generation to the dissipation. So with waves, you typically might generate them in the Southern Ocean. They might go across the whole Pacific to California or Alaska or somewhere and break on the beaches there. Yeah. And uh, this, by the way, is not just speculation. It's very well known from a classic study by Walter Monk's group that actually traced the waves yeah. on their way across the Pacific. There's a documentary on it, actually. Yeah, there's a video that um, somebody put it up on YouTube at some point that talked about how uh, Monk and company used these bottom pressure recorders that actually punched holes into tape. So when they wanted to work out the time series of pressure, they just went and got these physical rolls of tape and looked at... They had to sit down and work out the time series based on little holes in the tape, which is amazing. And that reminds you know, me of my yeah. student days. When I was a PhD student here, I worked with paper tape. Yeah. We, we actually, I actually did my first calculations on a vacuum tube computer, <laughs> if you please, oh. called EDSAC, and you <laughs> fit it with paper tape. And we were all fluent at reading little holes on the tape. We Whoa. could read them almost like print because you have to get good at it to edit them and get the errors out that's amazing yeah <laughs> imagine you haven't done that in a while so <laughs> yeah well i guess <laughs> when walter monk was doing that it was even earlier I, I when was it probably the 60s i'm not sure it was a long time ago they did that study it sounds just right yeah late 50s 60s i want to say yeah. something like something that like, yeah. yeah i mean they were at it for quite a few years mm-hmm. but of course p- punching paper tape would have been a natural way for them to record things also graphs graphic, you know, wiggling pens on right. scrolls of paper right. they would have used, I expect. So we were talking about Rusby waves and Rusby wave breaking and momentum oh, well, transfer. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So, okay, uh, how do we... This is a, a big story, but yeah. um, okay, here's where the mathematics come in, because the other one of the other things I'm known for is this is what's called the generalised Lagrangian mean theory of wave-mean flow interaction, which I worked on very hard with a student of mine called David Andrews. Mm. So there's several Andrews and McIntyre papers that actually set aside quite a bit. But they are rather mathematical. But what they're telling you, essentially, is that um, 
When waves systematically generate mean flows by breaking on a beach or in any other way, the fundamental, uh, the defining characteristic of that is that the material contours that would simply undulate in the wave motion, as described by an ordinary linearized wave theory, um, those deform irreversibly. That's what wave breaking is fundamentally for the purpose of understanding when it irreversibly changes mean flows. Mm. And you don't actually have to go into the whole wave mean theory, although it's nice to know how to write down Lagrangian means and to carry out all the esoteric details of that. Um, But you can also think of it as, well, it comes down in the end to Kelvin circulation theorem, all right? Um, Circulation in Kelvin sense is the line integral of velocity along a wavy material contour. And the thing about waves that aren't breaking or dissipating in other ways, such as viscosity or infrared damping or whatever, non-dissipating, non-breaking waves preserve their Kelvin circulation. And that's the. F- and, and by the way, this was pointed out by Rayleigh hmm. uh, ages ago. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. But I think we were the first to do the complete Lagrangian mean theory to encapsulate this idea. But. Rayleigh pointed out, and they were interested in the wave mean flow problems of an acoustic kind. You know, you have sound waves dissipating through something called Kunt's tubes, Kunt, K-U-N-D-T, and and they were like organ pipes, so you set up an acoustic standing wave, and lo and behold, there was a boundary layer on the tube wall, and you saw mean flows, (laughs) and those were very much related to the viscous dissipation. (laughs) And viscosity is one of the things that breaks... Kelvin circulation theorem and Rayleigh pointed out that's why you get these persistent mean flows because you've broken Kelvin circulation theorem Hmm. and that's something that applies to all these other problems including the Rossby waves you see that's the connection so it sounded like if we wanted to talk about wave breaking in in general is it too simple to say that well wave breaking in general is about momentum transfer and that that can happen at different, different magnitudes let me put it slightly more Precisely, wave breaking is about when momentum transfer becomes irreversible. Mm, okay. Yeah. And and this is the you know if you take think the ocean beach for a moment, you get these long shore currents, and of course you also get rip currents because it's not homogeneous along the shore. So the currents can come together and and shoot jets out, which is a very dangerous thing for swimmers. Mm, yes. Uh, but that's all wave induced. Um, due to the momentum coming in from wherever, the Southern Ocean or wherever, where the storm generated the waves, coming all the way across the ocean. And finally, um, becoming mean flows along the shores and and rip currents and whatnot. And so the breaking is where that momentum transport converges. Um, When the waves are on their way, you don't get strong currents because... uh, you don't the waves talk some we're talking about ocean swell. Sure. Of course. I mean Monk's study was really important milestone because it's not obvious that the waves can get all the way across the ocean, more or less as described by yeah. linear wave theory, but he showed showed they are. <laughs> you know, the group velocity and all of that worked out. If you have a storm, you know this thing, if you drop a stone into a pond or if you have a storm generating waves, 
You see the wave frequency increasing as time goes on because the slowest, the lowest frequency waves get there first. Hmm. So it's a kind of an easily recognizable signature. A bit like black holes merging, Dan. Black <laughs> holes merging, you see this incredibly characteristic signature of the frequency going up. Yeah. And the monks' waves are a bit like that. And that's been detected now. <laughs> that is a wo- now. another wonderful milestone. It and, is, yeah. And because it's audio frequency, you can make a new music going. <laughs> oh, these are great! Yeah, I really uh, I've heard unmistakable this. signature. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's, I've seen it what five or six times now. I think <laughs> I've seen a neutron star version as well. You know, that's what Jocelyn Burnell was talking about this morning in Jim Al Khalili's mm. interview. Uh, she was the discoverer of pulsars, so that's how they eventually found out there was such a thing as a neutron star. Sorry, we're getting off track now. <laughs> so now, have I made it clear about Rossby wave breaking? The point is. Yeah. That um, it's the irrevers- it's making momentum transport irreversible, wave-induced momentum transport irreversible by being one of the ways waves dissipate. And with Rossby waves, when they break, um, you always uh, the, the generic thing is that when the waves dissipate or, or break, you get a systematic mean flow change in the sense of the wave's phase speed. So because Rossby, and I mean intrinsic phase speed, that's the phase speed relative to the mean flow. So Rossby waves have this backwards phase speed. Yes, I mean, they they always go westward. I mean, Rossby, remember what Rossby, remember I talked about material contours deforming irreversibly. Mm-hmm. That's the characteristic, that's the way of talking about wave breaking that relates to wave mean interaction. So with Rossby waves, you have these potential vorticity contours because Rossby waves owe their existence to a gradient of potential vorticity. <laughs> that might be a good point to talk about. Do we want to expand on what a Rossby wave is? And Let, Let's come to that in a moment. Or... Okay, sure. But if you just go with the idea that you have undulating potential vorticity mm-hmm. contours on a stratification surface, on an isotropic surface in the atmosphere or an, a neutral density surface in the ocean, you, you have... PV, may I say PV for potential yeah, vorticity? Yeah, potential vorticity, yeah. <laughs> From here on out, PV, PV is potential, potential vorticity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, um, they, instead of just undulating, as in a textbook theory of Rossby waves, they deform irreversibly mm-hmm. and make eddies. Mm-hmm. That's what Rossby wave breaking looks like, and it's accompanied by an irreversible momentum transport that is retrograde. You slow down the zonal flow where the waves are breaking. So that's an important part of this whole story about um, mean circulations because what I mean how are mean circulations driven they are driven by wave induced forces and I like to call it gyroscopic pumping because if you have a systematic retrograde force for example then the Coriolis force you're pushing things westward but the Coriolis force systematically turns them forward so you've got a mechanical pumping action and that is what drives the Brewer-Dobson circulation. And I always hammer that point because there's a great myth out that's still out there in some places that says, oh, the Brewer-Dobson circulation is driven by solar heating. You know, hot air rises in the tropics and descends in, uh, in the poles. And if people stop to think, they'd realise it made no sense because in the summer, the pole is the sunniest place and not the equator. It doesn't make any sense at all. Mm. But... Um, you know, we've studied this a lot with various thought experiments where you push the air westward and see what the response is. And of course, the response is it does go poleward, and furthermore, it closes downward. It, it tends to close downward. We call this the downward control principle. If you do a thought, thought experiment, 
pushing things out westward and you keep pushing them so you get a steady state it's the simplest such experiment you can do then it ends up with the poleward flow entirely going downward mm. and upward in the tropics and of course the circulation closes in something like a frictional boundary layer or something below where the forces are in the opposite sense. And in this thought experiment, the westward pushing comes from Rossby wave. Breaking. It comes from exactly this Rossby right. wave breaking yep. process. That's the dominant process in the stratosphere. There's a contribution from gravity wave breaking as well, mm. but it's not so big. Although if you want to be quantitative and have a good model, you have to put that in as well. Mm. By the way, if you go further up into the mesosphere to 90-ish kilometres, then you have gravity wave breaking as the main driver. Mm. And that's why the summer polar mesosphere is, is not just the sunniest place on Earth at solstice. It's the coldest place on Earth, if I may stretch the metha- metaphor. It's a lot colder by several tens of degrees than the Antarctic continent in winter. It's I think they've measured temperatures down to 110 Kelvin, if I remember. That mm. is very cold indeed. Yeah, for sure. Much but, lower density, to be fair. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the density is very low. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, the, the point is interesting, isn't it? Because, mm-hmm. uh, well, before this was understood, which again was an important part of my career, I think I had some influence in getting this understood. Mm. Uh, before that, people came up with the craziest sort of photochemical theories why it's so cold up there but actually it's a refrigerator it's a mechanically driven refrigerator driven by gyroscopic pumping (laughs) breaking gravity waves pushing things equatorward and then they have to come up they they give you a prograde force by the way in the summer mesosphere so it's the opposite sense the gravity waves you push stuff the gravity waves so the gyroscopic pumping from them pushes stuff equatorward and so it has to come up in the pole and that cools it it's like unpumping a bicycle. It's a cooling effect, and that's that what because, makes it cold. Is that because it's put the gravity wave, the gravity waves break and tend to push things eastward, which then the Cori- combines with the Coriolis tendency to, in the northern hemisphere, it will you know, direct things to the to the right, and then in the southern hemisphere to the left. So, um, so that will tend to push things towards the equator. Exactly right. right. Yeah. Okay, you got yeah. it. Okay, exactly right. Right. Yep. So that's and interesting. Yeah. And, of course, that fits together. The whole jigsaw puzzle is understandable from that. Where do noctilucent clouds come from? Mm. The canary in the mine of climate change. These, the world's highest clouds at uh, 83-ish kilometres, they're there not just because the summer meso- they're in the summer mesosphere, remember? Uh, they have this... I've seen them myself. They, if, have you ever seen an octolucent cloud? No. Usually they have this wonderful electric blue mm. colour because what, what you do is in, in late summer you look toward the polar horizon. You can just about see them from Cambridge <laughs> low down on the horizon. Mm. I did once. And um, they are backlit by the sun coming from the day side <laughs> and the electric blue comes from the fact that the sunlight coming from the day side goes through the ozone layer and that filters out some of the reddish yellowish colours it's mm-hmm. called the Chapuis band absorption band mm-hmm. in the visible so you get this blue colour which is wonderful to see and uh, okay why are they there because I mean we know from rocket measurements now that they are ice particles they're made of water basically they're there because water is carried up in this upwelling over the pole, which is gyroscopically pumped by breaking gravity waves. 
and also you get the very low temperatures. So it's cold and slightly more moist than it would otherwise be, and that's mm. enough to form the clouds. Why do you need mm. the water vapour supply? Because photochemistry with hard ultraviolet, lime and alpha and so on, that destroys the water vapour on a mm. time scale of weeks. So you have to keep supplying water vapour to make the noctilucent clouds. Into the mesosphere. You have to keep supplying it. So how do you how do you get the water vapour into the mesosphere then? Oh, well, there's, there's enough of it down. I mean, for this purpose, there's enough water vapour in the stratosphere, even though the stratosphere is very dry compared with the troposphere. Hmm. But um, you've got a few parts per million by volume, if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, that's enough to upwell and f- feed the noctilucent clouds. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of a well-researched topic now. That's great. Do we want to talk a little bit more about what a Rossby wave is? Okay, okay. So I said a Rossby wave owes its existence to a a potential vorticity gradient. Yes. So um, if you think on one stratification surface, an isentropic surface in the stratosphere, for instance, uh, you've got a gradient, a global scale gradient of potential vorticity. The, The details vary with what the zonal flows look like, whether you've got the ozone hole jet or whatever. But roughly speaking you've always got this equator to pole gradient with the PV increasing toward the north pole and whenever you've got a gradient like that on a stratification surface the dynamics is such that when you displace you make an undular displacement you make your okay if you didn't have any undulation the PV contours would be along latitude circles Mm. so picture that and now picture a thought experiment where you push them pole and equator within some undulating pattern and uh, where the contour is northward the local PV is low because of the gradient the PV is a material invariant I should have said hmm. to first approximation It's so when you move the PV contours the PV values um, follow the motion hmm. so you're bringing low values poleward from the from nearer the equator in the places where the undulation is poleward and vice versa where it's equatorward. So now along your latitude circle you have a pattern of PV anomalies. Mm. So it's high where the equatorward displacement and low where poleward in the northern hemisphere. So think of a series of plus minus plus minus signs around the latitude circle. It's easier if I could draw a picture, but we're on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the other thing about the dynamics is that on these large scales and where something called the Rossby number is small, you have what's called balanced motion, and that's another area I've gone into very deeply, but... um, When you have balanced motion, the simplest version of this is what's called geostrophic balance, uh, where the Coriolis force balances the velocity. Sorry, the Coriolis force of the velocity balances the pressure gradient. So, if you know the pressure pattern, you know the velocity pattern. But if you have that sort of balance or the various refinements that you can construct, the bottom line is that if you know the PV distribution, you can deduce everything else. I like to call that the invertibility principle for PV. Uh, The PV field tells you everything else in this kind of dynamics, and for these large-scale Rossby waves in the stratosphere, that's pretty accurate. So where you have these plus and minus signs of PV anomalies, if you carry out the inversion, 
you get a velocity pattern that is just 90 degrees out of phase with the displacement of the contours. Mm -hmm. And if you have a displacement that's 90 degrees out of phase with velocity, these, these are north-south velocities, the, sheer, the simple kinematics, if you make a movie of this in your mind, you can see that the undulations must propagate toward the west. Hmm. That's the Rossby wave propagation mechanism, and it explains why it's a one-way propagation. Notice that's quite different from classical waves, where you've got waves in one direction, you can always have the opposite, sound waves, water yeah. waves, most kinds of waves. That's true, because the equations governing them have two time derivatives. Well, with Rossby waves, you have one time derivative, you see, hmm. uh, so it can only go one way. The time derivative is in the equation that tells you that the potential vorticity is a material invariant. Rate of change of potential vorticity is given by, you know, northward advection against the background gradient. Yeah, you mentioned this point about yeah PV being a material invariant. It's a mathematically conserved quantity in some situations. Material means following a fluid particle. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should dig into that a little bit more. I wonder um, if if you wanted to explain to someone in really simple terms what is PV and uh, you know, what is potential vorticity. If you wanted to give them, to go back to our model hierarchy idea, mm. what's the simplest kind of entryway, entry-level model we could give somebody to explain PV and potential vorticity? Because as you've discussed, it's a really central quantity dynamically that produces a lot of really interesting phenomena that drive weather and drive circulation. That's right. I mean, that big review that Brian Hoskins and I wrote with um, Andy Robertson uh, is making the point that it, knowing all this it's very helpful in understanding practically any large-scale weather system. Yeah. And they're quite influential. For sure. So, okay, your question. What's the simplest right. way to what, say what PV is? Yeah, well, what's a good model? The answer I like is the one that I put into my encyclopedia article on PV, mm. which you can get off my webpage because I got special permission to circulate it. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, that answer says the following. Think of guess what? The Kelvin circulation mm. of a contour, a material contour that's on a stratification surface. Mm -hmm. And if you think of the limiting case of the material contour being getting shrinking to something very small, the PV is essentially the Kelvin circulation around exactly such a contour. You know, give or take a, a normalizing factor. You can go into what that is, and you'll see it in my encyclopedia article. Is it too simple to think of it as circulation associated with a little column? Sometimes you see people drawing little columns. when they That's another way of saying it, yes. Or, yeah. But yeah. it's simpler to say it the way I did, because then it is nothing but the circulation on one stratification surface. Hmm. You can then say, as, as most of the textbooks do, oh, think of two stratification surfaces, and not just one little contour, but the matching one on the other surface mm. and then you've got a little pillbox shaped column right, right. and uh, then you can think about how that stretches or compresses as the motion goes on and you can think of it spinning up and spinning down and the potential vorticity is the invariant quantity that uh, tells you what um, well it, it tells you how much it's spun up or down depending on the column length. Right. seems to me that's a little more complicated. <laughs> I, I could see that, that you wanted to try to talk about the circulation on a single surface as a starting point for a simple model, right? It's just, you, you imagine a little mathematical circle, a little mathematical contour, and that the, the, you're thinking about the circulation around that. So how is that related to angular momentum, which is something that 
you know, anybody who had studied like introductory physics would have come across angular momentum and right. would have come across the example of a skater, uh, you know, pulling their arms in and speeding up because their angular momentum is conserved. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, that's a special case of it, and it's quite a useful starting point if you know that already. So take your c- cylinder, <coughs> your, con- your pair of condor, and you do this ballerina trick of pulling your arms in. That's to say you make the column taller and thinner, and it spins up like a skater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. But that's only a special case, because for that to be precisely correct, everything has to be axisymmetric. Mm. It really has to be a cylinder... So the beauty of potential vorticity is you can apply that sort of idea, but show it applies even when things aren't axisymmetric, such as a breaking Rossby wave. <laughs> it still works. Mm. The invertibility principle still works. So then that that gets me thinking about that's a little bit where Earth's geometry comes in, right? That yep. you know, you we're, if you're thinking about PV at different latitudes on the Earth's surface, right? You're no, you're no longer just thinking about uh, circulation contours that are um, kind of oriented in uh, like a perpendicular fashion to the the earth, like a vertical away from the earth. I'm using my hands a lot, which, as you mentioned, is not useful for the <laughs> for the audio. Um, no, I should drink. Yeah, mm. that's right. Well, again, the beauty of PV, especially its exact form, which I gave you, it's essentially mm-hmm. the Kelvin circulation around the small. Contour. That's the exact form. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Rossby noticed this. Rossby never gets enough credit for inventing PV. It's always credited to Ertel. Mm-hmm. But I think Rossby deserves a bigger credit because Ertel obviously got it from Rossby because Ertel went and visited Rossby. Once you know that the PV is essentially this circulation around a small contour in a, in a, nice, in a stratification surface, it's only a student exercise in vector calculus to produce Ertel's formula. It's a routine exercise to see that they're the equivalent, mathematically equivalent. So now remind me of your question. Oh, we were trying to, let's see, we were trying to relate that to angular momentum, and then we were relating it to the Earth's geometry. Okay, okay. Now here's here's what's beautiful again. Um, The exact formula picks out the component of vorticity that's at right angles to the stratification surfaces. Mm. And because the stratification surfaces are approximately horizontal, usually, there are interesting exceptions to that with tropopause jet streams, by the way, but let's, let's take the stratosphere where it's true they're approximately horizontal. Then, saying that you're picking out the component of vorticity, and by the way, this is absolute vorticity, including the Earth's rotation. Mm. That's mm-hmm. very important. Yes. You're picking out that component, and then when you move a parcel poleward or equatorward, uh, you, in, a way, in such a way that PV is materially conserved, um, it, it usually means that the relative vorticity changes. If you move something poleward from the tropics, you'll get a negative relative vorticity. You'll get an anticyclone, in other words, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And often the textbooks say, well, it's just the vertical component. But really, it's the component perpendicular to the stratification surfaces mm. in the exact version. Right. So you have this conserved, materially conserved quantity. And as you imagine, you know, moving this circular circulation contour from one latitude to the other, you get circulation. Like, circulation is induced because that quantity has to be conserved. Yes. Yeah. And that's part of the Rossby wave mechanism, of course. You can think of it in terms of circulation. Mm. relative circulation changing. That's the same velocity field I talked about that right. makes the contour 
you induce, you induce a disturbance and that creates a little circulation and that circulation creates other disturbances which then create counterbalancing circulations in a way that go back to the, the, the Rossby mechanism that you that you pointed yeah, out. Yeah, makes the yeah. undulations propagate westward. And uh, so you can... you can. Um, I talked about it in terms of velocity field. Yes. Remember this row of plus and minus sign potential vorticity anomalies on, on a latitude circle. Well, if you think of a plus anomaly, it's got an anti-clockwise circulation around it. Cyclonic, that's anti-clockwise. But you can see that involves velocity field that's 90 degrees out of phase with the displacement, mm-hmm. hence the propagation. Yeah. Now, I want to get, I want to get really uh, nerdy on you here for a minute. Um, that uh, So we, we mentioned that you know, this is a conserved quantity, this PV thing. Materially yeah, materially conserved quantity is this PV thing. And often in physics, when you come across a conserved quantity, it tells you, oh, there's some symmetry in the physical laws here, right? Yes. There's some symmetry. There's some operation that you could perform under which the equations don't change. That's what's called Noether's theorem. Yeah, yeah, Noether's yeah, yeah, yeah. theorem, yeah. So um, have you ever read this book uh, by Rick Salmon? He talks about this a bit, this um, lectures on geophysical fluid dynamics. He has a... Yeah, he'd yeah. have made that point, I'm sure. Rick yeah. is very interested in the deep theory. I haven't read that book, but it's, it's anyway, it's known in the community of those of us who work on these things. Yes, the symmetry involved is the exchange of particles around a loop. Mm. The same contour I was talking about. If you move the fluid particles around the loop, you don't change anything about the dynamics. <laughs> that is the symmetry that gives you PV conservation. Ah, that's awesome. So there, there we have it. There's the, the, big, the physical connection. The symmetry is moving particles around the material conservation. Sorry, yes. the material contour. Yes, that's oh. an example of what I meant by mathematics. Understanding things in mathematics and pictures at the same time. Hmm. And once you have that integrated picture with the mathematics and the picture and um, the, 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 the words and even the kind of feeling of your, where your understanding fix, fits in, then, yeah, you're right. Even on a subjective way, it, it feels like you understand something better when all of those things click into place. You feel somehow mm. confident with it and more comfortable with it? Yeah, for like more cross-checks. Mm. This is my other philosophical point, um, that we have to be careful because there all those journalists out there are always asking when is something proven scientifically mm. and when is something true or when it's false and the answer has to be no you can't talk about that in science you can only, only talk about how good is your model yes does it fit well under what range of circumstances does it fit take einstein's equations light speed ripples black holes merging all of that it's a great theory that accurately describes a huge range of circumstances, but it is not the absolute truth. Mm. Um, knowing what is an absolute truth is a matter for uh, religious... I was about to say fanatics, but... <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a faith that helps to get you through mm. life. I'm not like Richard Dawkins saying, thou shalt not. Mm, right. uh, I mean, um, but the in science... The issue is always, what's the degree of confidence? And, you know, will the sun rise tomorrow? We're very confident it will, yes. but we can't say we're yeah. absolutely sure. Yeah, we're, we're much better at disproving things than we are at, you know, proving things, as you pointed out. Mm. That's, that's not a super well-defined concept. Yeah, that's the way Karl you know. Popper would, mm. would have put it. Um, I, I don't like his word falsification, which has mm. got all these political overtones. Mm. But um, I think he's fundamentally right. You can only disprove a theory but um, of course you can respect 
uh, and use a theory if it's been very heavily cross-checked, like Einstein's equations or our fluid dynamical equations, for that yeah. matter. And that makes me think, you know, in, in a kind of introductory physics, when you get introduced to, well, here's you know Newton's equation of motion. Uh, okay, no, there is a more general description of the world, but you know, starting with Newton, that's a pretty good starting place. Starting with you know the the second law. You know, Newton's get you, equations you know, are very, it's a very powerful theory yeah. that has a very wide range of applicability, Absolutely. even if not so wide as Einstein's. Right, That's yeah. the best way. It's, it's a model which has a certain range of validity and a certain accuracy. Exactly. And yeah. uh, this whole issue of um, you, you know, this, this brings me to human evolution again, because of course we have, as well as the dreadful dichotomization instinct which makes us stupid <laughs> we we have an instinct to want to know an absolute truth mm. and this of course is how tribes held themselves together and how they would be able to say uh, we are in our belief system, we are right and they are wrong there you go, dichotomization mm. again right. as used by politicians today um, for sure but um, it's, a, it's another deep and very primordial instinct it goes back to the beginnings of language, which I would argue, I didn't quite finish that point, did I? I would argue it's millions of years old. This idea that language was suddenly invented as a purely cultural thing 50,000 or 100,000 years ago so you think there, doesn't make any sense. Mm, so you think there probably has been some form of language, some form of verbal communication that has an old, a very old history? I think it must have been a multi-timescale process yeah. with fast cultural evolution strongly interacting with slow genomic evolution over millions of years, perhaps one or two million, much longer than the linguists say because they don't have a biological perspective. Hmm. Um, but that makes sense because it's only fast and slow can interact strongly. Hmm. That's the point many of them have missed. So hmm. once you begin to have language and once you begin to... And the other point about this, by the way, is that when people like Richard Dawkins say group select... And, and even Stephen Pinker, who's a very smart guy, but he's and Dan Dennett, for that matter, they're all hung up on this idea that you can't have group-level selection. But when you think about the power of language and the power of human societies to cooperate and use language to influence each other and to develop strategies and get smart about fighting the other tribe hmm. uh, you can see why they, this instinct of believing in absolute truth would have been selected for hmm. because it makes a tribe more powerful, we are right and they are wrong, we are going to have victory over them there's a, a psychologist um, I think that's the right term for him uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, he oh yes, nice he's book. a very interesting. Uh, and there's another one called Steve Riker too, by mm. the way, who, who, who I like very much because yeah. Steve Riker shows that our dichotomization and uh, we are right and they are wrong can be very flexible. Mm. That's one of our. Do you know these experiments with football jerseys that mm. Riker did? No, I don't think I've heard I, that one. I, I cite him in the ebook, by the way. Mm. But um, the in in essence, you can take groups of people and make them behave differently in the us-versus-them arena just by posing questions differently. Uh, so, for instance, these were all football fans. So they, the group was told, oh, um, 
you're all Manchester United fans and, and uh, you're going to go over to this other building and we're going to do some questionnaires on this and that. But the real test was that on their way across, they saw a guy on the ground and obviously in distress wearing a rival football mm. T-shirt. And in that situation, they didn't help the poor guy very much. But then they took another group and exactly the same sweaters on all concerned and said you are all football fans aren't you and now we're going to take you over to the other building etc etc oh, and this yes. time they helped the other guy much this is a wonderful demonstration wow. that our idea of who the them is in us and them can be very flexible and that is one of and, and this Jonathan Hyde guy has some interesting things as well about he's, he's very much on the emotional the importance of emotional decision making yes yeah he has this nice book uh, The Righteous Mind and one of the analogies that he likes to make is he talks about the elephant and the rider. So the, the oh elephants. yeah, the elephant's the unconscious, and yeah. the rider is the unconscious bit that we're aware of. Yeah. And, and at first sight, it seems hopeless. The elephant's going to go where it wants, but then you can say, no, you can get into a partnership. You can gradually persuade the elephant to behave differently yes, yeah. if you're patient. <laughs> yeah, that the elephant tends to just either go towards something or away from something yeah, and, on some know. sort of path. Yeah, and that that is supposed to represent our very gut-level instinctive reaction. You know, we either like something or we don't. We either want to go towards something or we want to avoid it. Yeah, that's the primordial part, but the elephant can be influenced by the rider. That's the wonder of the human psyche. Yeah, that's right. It is certainly... I think in the in the book he does talk about that, and he also says how that the writer oftentimes the writer's job is like a spokesperson or a, a PR person for the elephant. That we're very good at coming up with kind of rationalizations for oh this is why my elephant is going this way. Oh yes, there's a rationalization side. Yeah, but yeah. the writer can also be a trainer and actually mm-hmm. influence the elephant. Yeah. With patience. <laughs> yeah, with patience. Yeah, so it's not it's not totally hopeless. We're not just. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, I think he he's trying to make the point that we maybe aren't as um, strictly kind of rational as we like to think we are. That I think, I think is the point. You know, we we like to imagine ourselves as oh well. First, I very calmly take in all the evidence, and then I make a decision. And I think his point is like, no, no. Uh, you know, we we get there eventually if we are d- trained enough, and if we are if we kind of focus in that way enough, but. Our gut level instincts are very powerful, and yeah, you know, he's right. you know, yeah, yeah, of course he is. yeah. I mean, another great book on all of that is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, I've which I like cite actually, because mm. it, and many many other demonstrations of unconscious. I mean, seeing the walking lights as a as a walking person is a good example of an unconscious process. We don't have any choice of, but to see it as a walking person. Yeah, actually, but that's a kind of a simple example. It gives much more complex. Yeah, so to our things like height does. So I think your point about you know what do we do then in response to like once we know that there is this really strong instinctive component to how people think and form mental models. Mm. I think your point about communication was then um, we have to we have to make use of that and we have to respect that fact if we're going to communicate yep. with people. And part of how we do that is by you mentioned you, you called it organic change. It is by keeping patterns. You know, using re- repetitive patterns, making small changes, as opposed, like in language, for example. You know, uh, you had this example on your your ebook where you're talking about a sentence where you say, "Well, it's much better to have uh, 
nearly the same phrase repeated twice and just change one word. To have an invariant element, in other words. That's much more powerful than varying everything. I think the example is something like, and you can can correct me if I'm wrong because you wrote it, uh, something like, well, if, if you will be serious, then I will be serious. How that is a clean, you know, all I've done is change one element, one word in each one of those phrases, right? And then that's much easier to digest than something like, well, if you'll be serious, then what I can do is I can try to be more, you know, just as an example, you know, right there. More vague. You know, more vague, yeah. <laughs> or, 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 right. more, or, or more frivolous more, is better. More to the antonym. point. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. agree with me, do you, that um, if, I, if you are serious, then I'll be serious is a clearer and stronger way to say it. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, like you mentioned, I think my brain certainly seems to have an easier time digesting that than it does, you know, a, a, a phrase loaded with lots of uh, other um, kind of conditionals and other uh, diversions and things. Yeah, that's a good example of why organic change is powerful in speech and writing, as in music and the visual arts as well, Mm -hmm. and in mathematics, because one of the deep connections between mathematics and music is they both... Organic change is powerful in both of them. In, in some of the most beautiful results in mathematics are, well, conservation theorems, mm-hmm. things that stay the same while everything yeah. else is changing in yeah. some sense or another. It's right. So this, this is, um, what was I going to say about... Um, did you see the Chinese version? Because I've always been interested in, whenever I encounter another language, it just seemed to work because people sometimes say oh no it's all very well to say you should you shouldn't be afraid of repetition in English but in French the culture is quite different we always must vary but my answer is no no it works the same in French or German and it works the same in Chinese did you see the Chinese example on my did yeah where the the, the symbols look very similar to each other and you can almost see like oh it's just this symbol that has changed you can see that there's an invariant element even if you don't know Chinese yeah and I did check very carefully with my Chinese colleagues. Mm. Yes, for them, it's clearer and stronger with the invariant element. Yeah, I think it's c- culturally people might get used to hearing certain phrases, but that almost feels like a different question than what does your brain have an easier time ingesting <laughs> versus what are we kind of culturally used to? Well, of course, culture gives you all sorts of particular mm. um, tropes, examples, uh, this and that, but my point is that at a deeper level... Uh, the organic change principle underpins everything, yeah. just as it does in music. So, if you wanted to talk to to scientists, you know, especially young scientists, how do we take that sort of idea and put it into practice when we're writing and giving talks? Mm-hmm. What are some? Do you have some practical ideas of how to apply, you know, uh, the 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 the, yeah. the, yeah. the um, principles that you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, the first thing is not to be afraid of repetition. Hmm. Um, the other two that I think are worth summarising are uh, be about twice as explicit as you feel necessary. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. Actually, I once had a research student who had to be three times as explicit <laughs> uh, to make sense. Uh, so it varies a bit. Um, but more explicit is the, is the general thing. It often means using a noun instead of a pronoun and not being afraid if it's a repeated noun hmm. because something else is changing. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of uh, some really good advice I got about giving talks, giving scientific talks. And this was from um, a professor at uh, University of Kentucky. He said, um, well, in a, in a good talk, give your audience uh, 80% of what they know already 
and then just add a little bit. Just add your 10 or 20% on top of that. Yeah, that's all going to change. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. that your audience will go away feeling like, I understood most of that. I got most of that. And I also learned a little bit new. I just slightly adjusted my model. Mm. But it's a lot to ask somebody, especially, for example, in an AGU or EGU situation. It's a lot to ask somebody like, okay, I want you to come up with a completely new mental model. I'm going to give you all the parts you need. Just hang on tight. Folks will have a much easier time digesting if you give them like, Here's something that you're already familiar with. Now just imagine changing this part or that part. But it sounds like a similar kind of... It sounds like, like those bits of advice are consistent with each other. What your Kentucky pressure professor said um, meshes very well with the third principle I always push, which is coherent ordering. Hmm. Um, get things in an order such that everything you say has been prepared by something that went before. Mm. Because very often when you start set down to write, the ideas don't occur in a coherent order, so you've got to jot them all down, but then rearrange the order. Right, yeah. To where it tells the story, and to where it can build. Yeah, the, uh, the, the context yeah, build. Is there. It has to build. Yeah. That's another way of saying it. Yeah. And the other principle I always push is the one from Strunk and White, omit needless words. Uh, that's what I can't do in this interview, but in writing I can always go through and get rid of everything that's needless. The, I'm laughing a little bit because I'm thinking about, um, there's, I forget who said it, but there's a quote, uh, simplify, simplify. That's another, that's the same sort of idea, same I think. But you don't have to say it twice. Mm. You can just say it once. You can say what simplify. I, you know what I've always called first drafts? Um, this all came out of reading my PhD student's theses and mm. noticing the same novice mistakes, and I got bored with writing the same thing. I thought I'd try and summarise what was involved. Mm. Um, and uh, the first draft, uh, in many cases, it's what I call verbal diarrhoea. It's a perfectly good thing to do. You've got to have something spill out. You've got to have something to start with. Yes. But then you've got to, you know... Clean it up. <laughs> yeah, to where it's easier to digest, easier to... I've been saying digest a lot on this podcast, but I, for some reason I like that phrase. Uh, to where it's easier to take in, it's easier to fit with the mental models that you already have kind of present in, in your brain. Yeah, and Something yeah. that typically occurs in the diarrhea stage is you, you, you call the same thing by several different names. Mm. As whatever occurs to you, it's very natural to vary things like that. But yeah. when you go through... You have to say, hey, that's a particular thing. I've got to decide what to call it and call it only the one thing. Yeah. You yeah. know, I once read a Nobel lecture by a man called Susumu Tonagawa, who was famous for a breakthrough in understanding the immune system. It's one of the early pieces of work that showed how the immune system recognizes incoming uh, pathological material, makes these antibodies that can fasten onto it which is a kind of model fitting, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an intelligent, perceptive system that perceives what's coming in. And, mm-hmm. it, again, it fits it by trying lots of stuff and, and noticing what fits. And then Darwinian selection kicks in, and that antibody is replaced uh, in huge numbers. And that's what your immune response on that level. I mean, there's more to it than that. But... Um, it's done by bits of DNA that are very good at playing genetic roulette, you know, mm. varying the sequence so as to vary the antibodies, try out different fits. Uh, but what I was struck by reading that lecture, I could understand practically everything in it simply because he followed lucidity principles. Mm. He always called the same thing by the same name. Yes. So even though there were several technical things that came in, I could pick up what they meant pretty quickly because he always used the same term. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me, if I 
make an analogy to storytelling. It's like introducing a character. Well, you want to keep calling them the same name, right? So that everybody knows. Well, that's an example of it, which everybody finds obvious. Indeed, yes, indeed. Yeah, call call that character the same name every time, and that way we'll know who you're talking about. Yep. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I try to do that, although you know, occasionally I, I mess up, and I always appreciate it when my occasionally I get a reviewer who will point that out. They'll say, "Well, you know, you called it some, this in, in the first paragraph, and then a few paragraphs later you called it something else. Let's let's be consistent and call it the same thing throughout the whole manuscript." And it really does help. Yeah. We have to keep telling this to our novice authors and some <laughs> older ones who should know better as well. <laughs> Because people have been te- taught to vary everything, variation good, repetition bad. Mm. Many, many people are taught in school. You've got to get over that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just embrace the, the repetition. Oh, sorry, yeah, embrace the repetition, embrace the clarity of that. Um, yeah. That, Using an invariant, invariant element in an organically changing pattern is one thing. Just saying the same thing again is another. That's just repetitiousness. Mm. Quite different. Yeah, for sure. Wow, I feel like we really painted a big picture there, and I, I think I can see all of the bits and pieces of of that and how they've connected to each other. Um, so, the, is there anything else in that well, story that you wanted to expand on a little bit? Well, I haven't had a chance to talk about the solar tacker climb. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's another great scientific. I'm not saying my I made a great contribution. I think I have made significant contributions to it. But um, the great story is what's called helio seismology. Um, I talked in the beginning, you know, um, let me say it again. Um, the sun has a temperature structure that makes it a very uh, high-Q acoustic um, uh, object. It, sound waves reflect almost perfectly from a level that's somewhere near the photosphere, the visible surface. Hmm. Um, so they bounce around inside the sun, and they have modes of vibration that have very very accurately defined frequencies and these are measured very accurately by the helioseismology program let's not go into the technicalities but basically you're talking about sound waves generated by the sun's turbulent convection and because we know the frequencies of all these many modes accurately we can back out the internal structure of the sun better than ever before including its differential rotation Hmm. and there was a very great surprise when those results began to come out because it turned out that the convection zone rotated differentially in much the same way as the surface which is the fast at the equator and slow at the pole but the radiative interior below the convection zone was in solid rotation as close as you could tell from within observational error so Occam's razor now kicks in and said, now the only sensible hypothesis is that the sun's interior is in solid rotation, and between it and the convection zone there's a thin shear layer. It's mm. called the taco climb, meaning speed gradient. Mm. Um, and that is a great challenge to fluid dynamicists to understand, and I've worked on that on and off ever since Douglas Goff. And I got, Douglas Goff, by the way, is... Douglas Coffey Fares. He's one of the great pioneers of helioseismology, and I've always talked about solar physics with stellar physics with Douglas. And we actually wrote a paper together in Nature that made the following point. If you take into account that the sun's interior is like the stratosphere in terms of its stable starification and rotation rate, um, and if you 
look at the fact that people have proposed that the tachycline is there because there's a horizontal eddy viscosity shaped by the stratification, you realise that what they're saying is completely wrong because we know from studies of the stratosphere and breaking Rossby waves and all that stuff that, if anything, it's a negative eddy viscosity. This goes back to Victor Starr, by the way, who talked about negative viscosity. I prefer to call it anti-friction. The point is this, that if you have a turbulent motion that's tending to mix the potential vorticity, it's overwhelmingly probable that you'll mix it in an inhomogeneous way, just like we observe in the Earth's winter stratosphere where it's relatively well mixed in middle latitudes, we call this the stratospheric surf zone. Um, So the, the bottom line is you drive the system away from solid rotation, not toward it. You make things like jet streams and ozone hole edges and all of that. Um, so it's an anti-frictional effect. So this astrophysical hypothesis that the sun's interior is in solid rotation because of a horizontal eddy viscosity makes no fluid dynamical sense at all. That was really my contribution. So I got together with Douglas and we wrote this nature paper saying, OK, we're going to use a Sherlock Holmes argument. Very dangerous. If you've eliminated all the possibilities, there's only one left, you know, that must be right. Very dangerous <laughs> argument usually, but I think it probably holds in this case because what we deduced from this is that there had to be a global-scale magnetic field inside the sun. Now, there's nothing revolutionary about that. It's long been known that you could easily have such fields for various reasons. But our point was, not only can you, but you must have such a field, otherwise you cannot understand the solid rotation. If the field were absent, it would be like the stratosphere, and you'd see jets and all sorts of inhomogeneities, which we do not see. Hmm. So that was our starting point. So magnetic fields are involved. So I revised all my knowledge of magnetohydrodynamics and worked on this quite a lot on and off, including a what, well, in 2011 I had a brilliant research student called Toby Wood. If you look at my webpage you'll see Mm -hmm. the results of this. We wrote a paper together about one of the ways in which this could hang together. It's a jigsaw puzzle. You've got the differential rotation in the convection zone, you've got the solid rotation beneath, you've got the sharp shear layer in between. How does that all hang together and how do you account for the needed angular momentum transport without having horizontal eddy viscosity, you see? Mm. And you can get it from Maxwell stresses, alphanic forces, if you like, from the magnetic field lines getting distorted, but making a theory that describes that in detail is a, is quite a challenge. Well, I think we made significant contributions. And funnily enough, I've begun to work on that again mm. just recently because some new arguments have shown up about mm. what the interior field has to be like. And the issue is to keep it confined because mm. if, you, if you let the lines poke out like a dipole, you see it can't hold the interior in solid rotation. How was your Sherlock Holmes argument received by the community? Did you get uh, well, feedback? Well, um... I think most of them think of our work as a bit esoteric, so its time hasn't yet come. Mm. I think we were ahead of our time. I'm hoping in in a paper I'm beginning to work on now, I'm going to get more of a grip on persuading people. It's actually a somewhat different model because there's an issue about how is the interior field aligned. We know it has to be dipolar because um, it has to have a lifetime comparable to the age of the sun, you know, a few giga years and the diffusion coefficients are such that only a dipole will survive 
that long, but there's still a question of whether it's aligned with the sun's rotation axis mm. or slanted. And uh, Toby and I worked on how it could be confined, if it were, aligned, and we had a beautiful boundary layer theory showing how that could work. Mm. It involves gyroscopic pumping, by the way, so that's another <laughs> important insight from uh. our stratospheric studies. But um, actually, there's now an increasingly strong case that the real field probably is slanted. Mm. So that makes the problem rather different, and I've just begun to think about how the alphenic, the angular momentum transport, works in that case, and I think I've got a good first idea about that, so fingers crossed. Uh, I think <laughs> that's one of the uh, things that I always like about folks who work in mathematics, like when you deal with and, and work in such a kind of fundamental uh, field, you have some freedom to hop around. You have some freedom to, you can apply what you've learned in one scientific discipline and go to a completely different one and hopefully offer some suggestions. And offer That's some, you know, really, yeah. really important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole thing about biological evolution is a good example. The professionals in the field have largely missed this point that multi-timescale processes can be powerful mm. and genome culture evolution could be on very different times yeah. Um, they had only had to know about gas pressure to realise it was a mistake. They didn't know, need to know about the ozone hole. Yeah. Um, but um, actually, the tachycline problem is another good example where um, one field cross fertilises another. And it's a great problem because, in with the politics of science funding and all of that, it's very difficult mm. to be cross disciplinary. But my point is, you don't have to be professional ex- level expert, you just have to know a bit about the other fields. And that can be enough. It can, yeah. Like you said, it's a bit harder to to sell it necessarily. Folks, uh, there's a lot of talk about how important interdisciplinary things are, but ultimately to drive that sort of work, you need funding to show up, right? You need to be able to make cross-disciplinary funding um, streams available to people. Like, that has to happen. So that's the politics of funding. That's very difficult, especially it gets more and more worse and worse, of course. How are you doing on time? I think you said you had uh, until five, roughly. I mean, we can we can go as long or short as, as we want. But, well, you know, till, I think yeah. I've touched on most of the things I would have wanted to. I mean, okay. mustn't try our listeners' patience well, too much. Must be one one of the one point <laughs> I was going to make though was was this um, that not only is cross fertilization important, but even within a field. A diversity of abilities is terribly, terribly important. My career illustrates it very well because, of course, a lot of the work in your area and my area depends on sophisticated computer models. So you need to have people who are very good at computer coding and handling all the files and all of that stuff. Um, that's something I've never been very good at. So when I've needed an interaction, I've usually collaborated with someone who could do that. I mean, this discovery of the world's largest breaking waves was a good example. It came out of a collaboration between me and some people in the Met Office who ran the inversions of the satellite data and mm. various computer models as, as well. Um, so I'm not especially good at computer coding. I can do simple coding and cope with relatively simple things, but I'm not good at it as mm. people go. But then I have an ability on the um, intuitive level and sometimes I think of new ways of thinking about something. So collaboration between lateral thinkers like me and people who are really good at the fine details, they're left hemisphere people and I'm a right hemisphere person, you might almost say. Are there things we can do to encourage 
there's other things we can do to encourage that sort of diversity and cross-disciplinary collaboration? I say to the young thing, don't be too, don't be too hasty to um, condemn someone's ideas as crazy or it doesn't quite fit with what you're doing because mm. diversity is terribly, terribly important for progress. We have to stay open to new ideas. Mm. And that's almost the most important thing I have to say. <laughs> that's nice, yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a few more kind of questions here at the end, a little bit? No, Whatever you want. You know, so I was wondering, you know, you've been, when I say in, in the field, I mean, you're obviously, you've been involved with lots of different scientific endeavors in different fields, but um, is there a, if, if you wanted to comment on, is there a change that you have noticed in the field over the scale of, of decades? In my like what these, main field of atmospheric ocean dynamics. Yeah, like, that's, that's sensible, because you've had a long view on that field. Yes. Yeah. Well, apart from some work on violin acoustics, uh, you know, how the bowed string works and so on, which is a wonderful bit of fun. Hmm. Mostly I've been a, well, professionally, a fluid dynamicist. Yes trying to understand jet streams and so on. By the way, I didn't say what a jet stream was. A jet stream is a very simple thing. If you know about potential vorticity, you can easily understand why you have jet streams. Remember, these jets, both in the atmosphere and the ocean, go over vast distances. They, they keep themselves hung together. They keep themselves focused. They keep a narrow velocity profile over thousands of kilometers, mm -hmm. which is very different from the jet you use to blow out your birthday candles. <laughs> if, if you could use an atmosphere-ocean jet to blow out your birthday, you could easily blow them out all the way across a big room because yeah. the jet would stay narrow. Why does it do that? Because it sharpens itself. How does that work? Because it undulates with the Rossby undulations. It's a Rossby waveguide, a jet is, because mm. the potential vorticity gradients are concentrated into the core of the jet. And why are they so concentrated? Why? Because the Rossby waves tend to break on both sides and mix the potential vorticity on both sides. So if you keep mixing on both sides, you maintain a sharp gradient in the middle. Mm. That's what a jet stream is. Mixing of momentum. No, yeah. mixing of potential what vorticity. Potential it's really vorticity. important to be clear about that, because if you think of momentum, well, that's more the birthday candle case. Mm. That your momentum, that you, you when you... When you try to blow out the birthday candles, you impart some momentum to the to the jet, the, and that gets mixed away. You can think of that as m mixing of momentum by a turbulence, roughly mm -hmm. speaking, and potential vorticity doesn't come in. It's not the same right. sort of fluid right. system. In the atmosphere and ocean, you've got stable stratification and rotation. That's why potential vorticity is important. Right. And yeah. in the sun's interior. <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing that it shows up in so many different places. Um, but yeah, it's stratified and rotating, which is actually most of the naturally occurring fluid bodies in the universe. <laughs> yeah, certainly like uh, Jupiter, for example. He's sure, lots of, we did uh, some work on Jupiter's jets. That's another story, but you can see it on our web page if you're interested. Yeah. So what's uh, have you noticed any shifts in the field kind of over the scale of decades, the main main field that you've been in? What's, what's your kind of long view on that? Have you noticed any long-term trends? And, and uh, another related question, which I can go ahead and ask you, and you, it, it might be part of the same story. Do you see in the near future, do you see the potential for any really big changes in you, your field, or do you think it is likely to be more uh, of an incremental, uh, kind of slower uh, process? And I'll let you define mentally what you might consider a big advance, a sudden advance compared with a lot of smaller advances mm. Well in the solar tacker problem there is scope for 
pretty big steps. I'm hoping I'm about to step, take one, but it's early days. Mm. In the case of atmosphere ocean dynamics on Earth, um, it's more going to be more incremental, I would say. I mean, I was lucky in my career to be involved in it in a time when some very simple things like that point about what jet streams are mm. weren't clear to people, so I was able to make contributions on that sort of level. And, uh, you know, the thing about giant breaking waves in the stratosphere, that hadn't been recognised because the, the accepted paradigm was you thought of linear Rossby waves mm. up there, and that was all. Hmm. Yes, yeah, just because they were large scale. It was a reasonable thing to say at the time. But then, well, uh, my involvement started with an, a toy model. You know, here's, here we are in the hierarchy. There's a very simple model you can make of breaking Rossby waves. It's called Rossby wave critical layer theory, nonlinear critical layer theory. And I and one or two students worked on that quite a lot. And we had our chance when... It, it was beginning to be possible to see the potential vorticity distributions in the real stratosphere. Actually, I wrote a big, big review article, which is quite well known, which said something like, um, I mean, it, it said something, it, I was following one of the senior people in the field who said things like, anyone who tries to compute so highly differentiated a quantity as potential vorticity from observational data is a fool. <laughs> you might recognise who it was from a term, but I shall leave him nameless. Uh, um, but anyway, this is what Erasmus Darwin called a damn fool experiment. You try it anyway. Mm. Uh, and my colleagues at the Met Office do that deserve the credit for this, Tim Palmer especially. And Tim has had a brilliant career since then. But um, Tim and I collaborated on this. So I'd done this Rossby wave critical layer theory, so I knew how the dynamics of Rossby wave breaking worked. Hmm. And Tim came up with this very crude picture of potential vorticity in, in the real stratosphere. And I was able to recognise instantly, heavens, that's a breaking Rossby wave seen in a very blurred view through hmm. knobbly glass. Because you knew the fingerprints of that physical pattern. It was perfectly recognisable despite the knobbly glass. You know, you had the satellite orbits. It was a rather crude spatial resolution. <laughs> but um, then we first thought, well, we should write companion papers on this, but we ended up saying, better to write a paper together. It'll be more cogent. And we did. Hmm. And that's a very famous paper, actually. It made the cover of nature. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was that was must have been uh, amazing, like you said, to be you know in the field when so many of these fundamental things uh, you know, hadn't been discovered. Yeah, yet. so that was waiting. a relatively simple qualitative insight. Of course, we checked it quantitatively in all sorts of ways because it was revolutionary, and various people found it hard to get. So it was a real step forward. Of course, now people are into you know work of Peter Hitchcock here, for instance. I mean. Recent work in stratospheric dynamics has had to become much more refined and mm. dependent on careful modelling because you're trying to get it much more subtle effects, such as the back reaction of the stratosphere on the troposphere. Mm. And people have made progress with good sets of experiments. You know. mm. yeah. so, so your sense of the field, it sounds like, is that it is reasonably stable. It's not like it's done, but the, a, a lot of the big... If we imagine a jigsaw puzzle, a lot of the big pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are in place. And uh, th this is a kind of leading question, but you can tell me if you agree or not. Would you say then that some of the bigger bigger advances in 
not just kind of dynamics, but in the climate field in general, will probably come from cross-disciplinary, you know, interdisciplinary connections from some of those barriers, from some of the coupled mechanisms across different spatial scales, physical and biological you know, couplings, these sort of interdisciplinary things. I mean, it sounds like that might be what you're, you're, you're saying. Very much so. This is why big team efforts and very good communication, people learning each other's language and being as lucid as they can. That's why all of that is so important. Yes, it's going to be more and more interdisciplinary. I mean, a good example is within fluid dynamics, if you will, is um, that weather forecasting models, state-of-the-art forecasting models, they're beginning to capture even the weather extremes that get worse and worse as climate change comes up uh, because the spatial resolution is good enough. And it's widely accepted. You need a pretty good stratosphere in your model mm. because there are these back reactions. So you need to keep the stratosphere in the model. The much weaker point is how does it, how does the large-scale dynamic couple with the cumulus and cumulonimbus convection? How do you know, convection of the tropics uh, teleconnect to other parts mm. of the climate system, influence jet stream meanders, do we get the beast from the east or not? That's a big jet stream meander isn't it? Mm. Um, and uh, that's a good example of the fluctuations in the system getting more and more energetic. Why? Because there's more weather fuel in the atmosphere, for God's sake every degree of temperature rise as the climate warms gives you 6% more weather fuel that's water vapour mm. so of course the whole system's getting more and more energetic and that means you get cold extremes as well as hot extremes like the beast from the east mm. so when people say oh it's cold what's ha whatever happened to global warming they don't know what they're talking about yeah. at all yeah exactly it's, they're working with an overly simplistic model that doesn't really fit with kind of how the system actually works they're not yeah. working with anything except <laughs> a sort of primitive uh, religious just, face in most cases just a, a gut level feeling of like no I don't like that I don't want that um, I talked with Cameron Brick uh, on one of these podcasts, who's a social psychologist, and uh, I'm probably oversimplifying his point, but his point was that often um, people will get into teams when it comes to climate and what kind of climate information that they are kind of willing to take on board and process, and that um, at least in the, the U.S., for example, for some folks, like they are part of a team and membership in that team depends on you saying, "Oh, I don't believe I don't believe in climate change," which of course is um, it's just used as a way for them to say, "Well, I'm not in that team. I'm not, in, I'm not interested in. I don't identify with that set of people." So it's it has you know them saying, "I don't. I'm not even going to process and think about climate change." It's really just a statement of their kind of identity and who they feel like they are, as opposed to they, they haven't actually processed like. A scientific argument. That's not part of what's going on. Yes, and you can't expect everyone to be scientifically minded. I mean, most yeah. of them will say we are right and they are wrong and go into groups. The, the tragedy of it is the way the social media amplifies all that and makes yeah. it more toxic. That's mm. something that AI... I think Mark Zuckerberg and company who make all these billions of dollars out of the dichotomization instinct are going to have to think again about that mm. because if they destroy civilization, they'll destroy their business as well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's uh, it's not in their interest, is it, to you know completely the long destabilize they, everything. They're all very smart people there. The question is, will they be smart enough? Time will tell. Yeah. Um, so we, we sometimes... Uh, 
you've covered this pretty extensively in other interviews, but we sometimes talk about, or we often talk about people's kind of pathway into science. Do you have a few minutes to talk about that? Is that okay? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah? So um, where did you you grow up? Well, when I was little, uh, this is in Australia, but uh, I suppose my first glimmerings were when I was very little and my father told me about stars. Mm. I think this is quite a common way in, isn't it? Those beautiful things in the sky, how far away they are. This is very hard for a kid to get their head around, but I um, listened absolutely enthralled to this story he told me. I mean, he explained what a light year was and so on and so forth. And I remember I I sort of (laughs) got him rather frustrated because uh, I, I would then... You know, a week later, say, Daddy, tell me about the stars. And he was embarrassed because he thought he'd told me everything he knew already. <laughs> <laughs> but that was one thing. Um, another thing, not so directly, but music was pure magic to me as a kid. We had we had great classical music played, and I was fascinated by that. And there was playing with mechanical toys, you know, Meccano and whatnot. Meccano, Erector, that sort of hmm. toy. I, I loved that. I loved making model aeroplanes and playing with electronics, and those were the days of vacuum tubes. When I started doing that, you couldn't even... You could barely get even a single transistor. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to fully appreciate how exciting that time must have been when electronics and the ability to you know, make things out of those simple components was still really new. You know, you could you could yes. build a thing, you could build a working you know piece of you know, electronic kit, and yes. you you can now too. You know, you can get nice kits and things from from you know toy stores that that will let you do that. But um, I guess there must have been a real sense of being at some kind of cutting edge when when you were doing it as a as a young kid, I guess, because it just was still a new thing. You know, building things out of vacuum tubes. Well, I didn't think in terms of a cutting edge, but I just loved playing with things and seeing how it worked. Yeah, yeah. Building building models, building small. Well, I just mean that there must have been some you know, excitement because it was, it was new. But I guess any, any kid can have that if it's new for them, right? If it's a new discovery. Um, so, uh, so it sounds like those were some of the threads that got you interested in tinkering with things and interested in learning oh, yes. about things. And uh, so what... Um, when did you first start thinking that you might kind of study science and mathematics, and what what pulled you in that direction? Well, I think I pretty well knew that I was interested in science and mathematics because my father, by the way, he was a neurophysiologist. He would show me the measurements you made on nerve fibers and things, mm. and I felt thought that was fascinating mm. as well. So generally, I was interested in science, and I read about some things. And well, the school I went to was. You know, uh, you could play with various experimental bits and pieces. Um, I suppose I was quite good at math as well. So, um, and then the thought was, I'd go and study these things at university, and they should include mathematics because it, with mathematics, it's best to learn it as young as you can. So I went with that, and I found it interesting enough. Uh, you know, I had fun understanding things like group theory or whatever it was. Mm. Uh, and that was in, in university? And then I got this scholarship to come here mm. uh, to this department. And at the time, there was a strong fluid dynamics group 
headed up by George Batchelor, famous turbulence theorist, oh, wow. founder of this department. <laughs> so one of the first things I remember was uh, <coughs> meeting George and getting sorted out with who would be my supervisor. Turned out to be a guy called Francis Brotherton, hmm. who was a very interesting guy, actually, a real lateral thinker. I'll tell you one thing that influenced me when I was in my early days as a research student, which is sitting in the great fluid dynamics seminar, which was held at 4.30 in those days, um, which was founded by George, essentially. It was every Friday in term time, and we'd all go down for a beer afterwards. <laughs> and uh, I remember one in which the speaker was a research student who'd done some very complicated MHD calculations and putting up slides crammed with complicated equations mm. and was going through them at a great pace, which I couldn't follow, of course. But the key, the, the interesting thing was that at, after a, a bit of this George Batchelor, the great George Batchelor, FRS, blah, 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 put his hand up and said, Len, Len, you're going much too fast for me. Slow down. Tell me what that equation means. Mm. And I suddenly thought, hey, wait a minute, I'm not the only one in the room who didn't, wasn't following it. That's right, yeah. So that was very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, so it was really encouraging for you to see the senior scientist, you know, ask questions and to say, no, hang on, I need you to slow down. Did it? Mm. Yeah, it lets you know that you were in, you were in good company. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you know, ever since then, I've, you could make a caricature of this, says I've made my career on asking dumb questions. But the thing is not to be afraid to ask questions. Actually, you may have noticed in the seminars these days, we always insist that a student ask the first one or two questions, mm. which is a very good thing. Um, but it doesn't matter if it's a dumb question, as long as it gets a discussion going and something clarified. Yes, yeah, exactly. So now we've talked about both sides of, you know, if you imagine a talk, a scientific or mathematical talk, you know, the person speaking shouldn't be afraid to say basic stuff that they feel like oh well you occasionally hear you know especially people who are kind of new to it they will apologize for explaining oh I'm sorry you probably are already familiar with this but I always feel like we well, shouldn't apologize this, this no. is good I, I like hearing the basics I like hearing the parts that I understand already that gives me a nice foundation that I can use to uh, understand the rest of your talk exactly yeah, just yeah. like your Kentucky professor said no that, that's right yeah no never be I mean that's that's the uh, sort of explicitness principle too don't be afraid of being too explicit uh, don't be afraid of insulting the senior person's intelligence mm -hmm. to say it anyway yes the senior uh, person hasn't got it all in order in his mind anyway probably that's right yeah it's complicated stuff we're talking about like it's hard to keep yeah. it all in your you can't keep it all in your head it's impossible yeah. So the person giving the talk, don't be afraid to explain basic stuff. The person listening to the talk, don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the talk, that event is supposed to be about communication, right? It's supposed to be about getting an idea from one brain to another <laughs> and back and forth, having it's, it be dynamic, a conversation. Right. You know, it's, it's strange the way what I call the explicitness principle is so often forgotten about. 
people giving talks often put up a slide and they say it's about this, but they forget to say what the symbols in the equations are. Yes. Just a simple thing like that makes all the difference. Yeah. Because I spend my time, what the hell does that symbol mean? I spend my time guessing rather than listening to the next point. Yeah. Or uh, axes, especially? like if somebody Well, labelling the axes. And yeah. you often see talks where the labels are there, but much too small to read. Yeah. What I do is I put big letters. I say, what's important about that they have to know? Well, I have to know that that's, that's latitude, so I put lat in big letters, yes. even if it's also there in small. Yeah, oh, that's right. Make it obvious, make it big, make it clear. Uh, one um, piece of writing advice I got that I'll just parrot was to um, think about the casual reader. That's how it was put to me. Think about somebody who doesn't have a ton of time to digest your, your mm-hmm. paper. Think about somebody who, you know, they need to be able to look and just get the highlights out of your, your work. So that try to make things as big and explicit and clear as possible, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So that's a, a communication. It's a conversation. Yeah. yeah. The reason people make this mistake so often is simply because they forget that the listener's head isn't full of what their head's full of. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That they're not working with the same mental models that you have in your own head. Mm. You know, it's a different different set. Um, yeah, well, this, this has been really good. I was just taking a look to see if there's anything else we wanted to talk about. Um, so I sometimes end with this kind of... Um, oh, well, we talked about your history about coming here you know, with Brother, Brotherton, you mentioned. And so um, it's, a, it's amazing you've, you've been able to see you know, the, the whole growth of the field because you know, you, when you first got into it, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm sure I know this isn't lost on you, the, the, the viewpoint that you have has been informed by being able to watch a huge part of your field grow from a kind of infancy to the level of sophistication that it's reached now. Yes, and, that's uh, been wonderful. Yeah. And I, I love that point you made earlier about how the you, you've been able to watch the construction of these models of stratospheric circulation of the ozone to the point where uh, it, it's had a big impact on kind of what governments and individuals have, have done, like the, the Montreal Protocol. Well, that was a great milestone, and we're mm. getting somewhere near it with climate now. It's probably going to be a bit too late to save some pretty catastrophic developments, but at least it may be less worse than it would otherwise have been. I mean, the Montreal Protocol has made it less worse, because mm. these chlorofluoro-type chemicals are very powerful greenhouse gases, mm. and there are yeah. less of those around because of the Montreal Protocol. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the things I like, one of the points I like making is that this sort of thing about words like drive, you know, mm-hmm. um, you often hear, our colleagues often get to arguments like, oh, it's all driven by this, no, 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 it's driven by that, mm-hmm. you know, and very often they may well both be right but they are thinking they have different thought experiments in mind yes. so when I get into those I say hey what's your thought experiment because that's often not made explicit mm. and what do you mean by drive anyway like what's the well you know, uh, that's, that's it's a very ambiguous word mm-hmm. it could mean supply the energy when you drive a car though uh, that's more about controlling it so I always talk about the amplifier with an amplifier, you can talk about what supplies the energy in the power supply circuit. You can talk about what supplies the input signal. And the word drive could apply to either one. Mm. You know, the biologists have a, a word that's often more useful, and they talk about A mediates B, mm. which is kind of nice. It's saying A is linked to B, but it isn't the only cause. 
because that's part of this. Yeah, mediates or influences. I've seen sometimes. Yeah, uh, influences be would be another way to say it. Yeah. I was curious, I meant to ask earlier, have you ever talked to biologists about, you know, you mentioned your criticism of some of the selfish gene ideas. Uh, I imagine... I've talked to a few, yes. Yeah, you've had an opportunity. How has that been received? Have you gotten some some feedback from Well, I haven't tried to campaign about it. I mean, I'm not really in that business. But I've talked to a few to make sure I understood where the field is now. There's a man called Kevin Leyland who works at Andrews. When I was up there giving a lecture, I had a chance to talk to him. And he's one of the ones who's getting beyond selfish genes, recognising that, well, to summarise, you've got the genome level, you've got layer upon layer upon layer of molecular circuitry. The circuit metaphor is quite a good one because there are protein molecules that act like transistors. You know, they're called allosteric enzymes. So they're like transistors because what they do depends on what's attached to them. So they have an input. or There are some with, which have many inputs. Uh, um, so you, to talk about circuits and that turn genes on and off, for example, uh, it makes a lot of sense. So you've got layer upon layer of these circuits and, and you've got causal connections in both directions. So to say that genes govern everything, that all the causal arrows upward, just doesn't make sense. And and for example, what we call the environment is much more complex than the, you know, the popular culture mm. says. The environment begins in the mother's womb. The embryo starts in there and recognises its environment and is influenced and influences. Straight away you have causal arrows in both mm. directions. That's why Jurassic Park is wrong, by the way. You can't make dinosaurs just from DNA. Mm. You need a dinosaur mum as well. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's not enough. It's whatever. You, if you did just take the DNA and try to make something, you would get something, but it's not necessarily the same thing that would have existed, you know, in the Jurassic period. And for our ancestors, environment for one individual means the cultural environment yes. as well. You see, yeah. and that's why group level selection is bound to be important hmm. as one tribe competes with another. Hmm. Which is another point that selfish genes completely miss. It's invisible. You see, selfish gene theory comes from a certain class of population genetics models which in their time were an important advance, Mm. by the way, because before that you had very vague and sloppy ideas about group-level selection. Mm. And when they said that's all wrong, it's not in these models, they had a point, except that now we have much more sophisticated model which brings back group selection and multi-layer causality. Mm. And so it's just sort of full circle in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, Jonathan Haidt, I think he called groups... Uh, and he, he sort of, in the book, recognizes that he was pushing the, the analogy a little bit, but he said, well, I, you can think of a group almost as a superorganism, that it has to work as a whole unit, yes. and that a superorganism can compete with other superorganisms, and you can get you know, evolution in some sense along those lines, too, yeah, as one group competes with another. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Mark Pagel, FRS, calls it the survival vehicle. Mark has an interesting book called Wired for Culture, mm. And it tries to argue everything from selfish gene theory. And he even says, about 100,000 years, our genes made a bold decision. They decided to give us language and culture, he says. You see? So he's completely missed this point about multi-timescale processes and long-timescale evolution. Fast cultural and slow genomic in a powerful interaction. Uh, And it doesn't 
makes sense. But he's got all sorts of... It's, it's an interesting book, because he's got all sorts of things about cultural evolution. Hmm. I mean, he thinks, of course, language was invented in, in one place and then just spread culturally. Hmm. Yeah, I like the point that, as I kind of bring it back around, that part of what's given you the ability to make a comment like that is working in a field where every scale can potentially interact with every other scale both in space and in time exactly. long time scales, short time scales To you and me that point is obvious but it, it has eluded them in mm. fact they've even enshrined the contrary in, a, in a, a great principle which is attributed to Ernst Meyer who's a famous bi- evolutionary biologist they talk about Proximate causation and ultimate causation. Hmm. That's just a fancy way of saying fast processes like development versus slow processes like genomic evolution. Hmm. And notice the unconscious bias that the word introduced. Hmm. Ultimate causation, that's the one that causes everything else you think unconsciously. They've already, by selecting that word, they've kind of chosen a model. They've chosen a representation of, oh, well, we think at some point there is one thing that causes this that chain of events to happen. It's another of these instincts. We want to find a single cause of everything. Mm. We have to keep pulling ourselves up. Hey, wait a minute. There might be more than one cause. Right. It's kind of a big soup of things interacting with each other. And a web of a causal, a web of cause and effect. If you talk about the climate system, it's exactly that. Yeah. That reminds me of this, um, oh, what was the philosopher's name? This uh, web of belief idea? I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Um, I've, forgotten, I've forgotten his name. So he talked about the the a person's belief as a as a kind of web, and that they're deep in the center of the web. There are those core beliefs that are a bit harder to change. But then, on the very outside of the web, there are beliefs that you can change much more quickly because they're that. That's how his mental model of this process is set up. About um, that, the the core beliefs are much more connected, much more plugged into all of your other beliefs, and they're harder to dislodge. Whereas the beliefs on the outside are much easier to kind of just pluck off and discard and replace with something else because they're not as interconnected with everything else. Yeah, that's, that's right, I think. I mean, mm. we scientists uh, have a core belief which, which include respect the evidence mm. and respect coherence and self-consistency. Don't tolerate alternative facts and all that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, that's hard to shift because we find they work again and again, but then out on mm. the outside you have particular hypotheses that might or might not survive. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then if you want to displace a big uh, a, a theory that has been in place for a long time and supported by a lot of evidence, you have to provide a tremendous amount of evidence to do so, right? That if you want to make a big change, extraordinary... I'm just stealing this quote from somewhere, but uh, extraordinary, extraordinary claims... Hypotheses require extraordinary levels of evidence. Yeah, that's right, something exactly. Like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to show such a thing as thought transfer... You need extraordinary levels because we don't have any sensible hypotheses as to how that might work. Mm, yeah. Well, I want to I want to respect your time because I know you said about five was kind of maybe. Well, we probably you know by now. I think we've done a nice a nice job. I, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate yeah. appreciate you digging into um, so many different topics. I mean, if I, there uh, were if there were one more thing, I'd, sure. I'd mention multi level yeah. thinking. Absolutely. Because yeah. um, I mean, look, it's in the ebook. I I do make quite a point about this, but one of the things that often confuses people when they say, oh, it wasn't me that done the crime, it was my genes what done it, (laughs) or these things about do we have free will or not. Hmm. Those sorts of questions are good examples of where you're confusing one level with another. Multi-level thinking is pretty basic. 
things that are complex at one level can be simple at another and my favourite example is Newton Newton treated the earth as a point mass Hmm. Uh, dear me Mr Newton don't you realise the earth is a much more complicated thing than a point mass but the reply is for my purpose a point mass is a perfectly good model (laughs) yes Yes. for the basic point of for example showing well yeah the the moon orbits around the earth just like the earth orbits around the sun all you need is point masses to make that kind of yeah, it happens that in the solar system most things are far apart. And by the way, even if it's a sphere, it still acts as a point mass, which is a beautiful bit of mathematics, which sort of reinforces it. Yeah. But um, symmetry. The moral of the story is you need to know what you're what you're trying to get at and what is the appropriate level. And now we have complexity theory and emergent properties and all that. And and the. Um, there's a, there's a wonderful development in statistics. I mentioned Bayesian inference, but there's a, a very important book by a man called Judea Pearl. Hmm. Jude Pearl. Yeah. I think it's spelled Judea Pearl and, and Pearl and someone. I, I cite it. Look in my e-book. You'll, you'll find it referred to. Hmm. And, uh, you know, getting beyond coin-tossing probability into the world of... Bayesian inference and much more flexible use of the theory. You have to talk about conditional probabilities. Actually, all probabilities are conditional on some information. Mm. Even the coin tossing is actually conditional on having a fair coin. Mm. So there really should be a vertical bar, fair coin at the other side. But Pearl's point is that now we're making explicit explicitness again. We're making explicit the fact that some of the conditioners can refer to actions, not just situations. Mm. So you can get at causality as distinct from correlation with this formalism. And this is going to be really important. There's something I call the do operator. So you have a probability condition on doing something, like giving someone a drug. Mm. You see, that's distinct from the person having taken the drug for one reason or another giving it in a controlled trial is a different thing from just looking at a population of people who might or might not have taken it. So that would be like the probability of A given that B happened. So in this case... Given that you did an experiment, this is the thought experiment thing or the real experiment where you did something, so you you make that explicit in your probabilistic uh, formalism. Hmm. Yeah, so the B would be we did something, we introduced some change into the system. I mean, you know, Sir James Jeans, we mentioned him, he had this little quip, did the thermometer keep the room hot? <laughs> He's making the point that the correlation doesn't tell you which way the causality is, if yes. any. Right. Uh, so um, you, the do operator would say, do an experiment, change room temperature, do change in room temperature, uh, probability of thermometer reading differently, you see. Yeah. But change thermometer, probability of room the do thermometer has a different probability. Right. You see, it makes that distinction. Yeah, and that, that sort of thinking, we're used to doing that in thought experiments and numerical experiments too, mathematical and numerical experiments. We're used to saying, oh, well, I'll introduce, I'll, I'll kick the system in this way and see what happens. But yeah. it's, it sounds like you're saying that this book, they talk about how to incorporate that into Bayesian probability. The li- language to... of probability, yes. Yeah. Because... Standard statistics has failed to recognise that. So you've always had this thing: I've got a strong correlation, but I have no idea about the causality. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the and once you have that into the language of Bayesian statistics, I don't really, I don't quite know what I'm talking about here. But I, does that then make it easier 
to feed it to something like a neural network or something where you, you want to have some kind of understanding of causality built into a mathematical representation of a, a you know, like a set of processes that are related to each other. And well, then, now we're yeah, back at machine yeah, learning and yeah, artificial intelligence. Yeah, exactly. Because smarter artificial intelligence systems will recognize this causality arrow better and better. Yeah, that's what I was getting and at. that formalism is mm. going to be a helpful tool to build those systems. And you said that was Pearl? Pearl, I think, was... Pearl, the, yes. Yeah. Pearl, as in jewel. But okay. See, look at my e-book. Uh, P-E-A-R-L. Yeah. So that'll be a good, uh, potentially a really useful tool, like for developing more sophisticated representations of the world that yes. have that causality built into them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, that sounds that sounds interesting. Um, so the uh, we usually like to kind of end with this pair of questions. So uh, and you can you know feel free to answer them however you like. So the pair of questions is something along the lines of what's something that you have. Um, Maybe uh, maybe disliked about your job or career, and then what's something that you've loved about your job or career? So that kind of hmm. picture of maybe your your some of your less favorite things and some of your more favorite things about. Well, there are various degrees of favoredness. Um, the least favored, I would think, is the horrible ways of bureaucracy, mm. which you have to deal with if you want to get a, even a small research group funded. I always found that very trying. But um, I don't know. I think we often did interesting work, so it was worth the pain. Mm. Yeah. And then there's, in in order, examining and teaching. Examining is a pain, but you can see why it's needed. Mm. And it's it's tough. You've got to work hard and get it right if you can. Mm. And then there's teaching, which is higher on the scale of like. It's tough, of course, mm. but of course you learn things yourself by trying to teach something. For sure. And yeah. the best of all is when you're in a research problem and you have an illumination, you say, oh, here's a new way of looking at something. That's the best of all. <laughs> that doesn't come very often necessarily, does it? You, yes. have, to, you have to chase that for a long time. Mm. But it comes back to this thing, understanding means looking at the problem in as many ways as possible. Yeah. That's a good note to end on. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for your time, Michael. I, I appreciate my, it. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. There you have it, my conversation with Professor Michael McIntyre in his Cambridge office. Thanks again to Professor McIntyre for your time and for your thoughts and for your openness. I really appreciated all of that. Um, Professor McIntyre has a number of other lectures and discussions and notes all online. If you do some searching around uh, Professor Michael McIntyre, Mathematics, Atmospheric Science, you can find some of that, including a TED Talk, and I'll try to post some links to those when I post the website. You can also find uh, Professor McIntyre and some students at a conference doing a lovely rendition of the PV song, the Potential Vorticity song. So uh, go do some hunting for that. To follow the podcast at Climate SciPod on Twitter for updates, please do leave us reviews and ratings on iTunes and other various platforms. That helps us out as a podcast, and it gives me some nice feedback to work with as well. So, uh, yeah. Over the next few weeks, we'll have some uh, really excellent guests. 
Uh, I'm expecting to record with Joanna Deplage. She'll tell us a bit about the international politics of climate and uh, how that factors, how that all works, which I admit I don't know much about. And we'll also talk to Lorzana, who is an oceanographer at Oxford. So those are coming up, and I will uh, talk to you later. Bye.